When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. A very sad story out of California that has to do with the creator of Angel Cakes Bakery in Oakland. And if you'd go to Angel Cakes Bakery in Oakland, California, you'd see long lines outside there. And they owe those long lines to the popularity of it, not only the product at the bakery, but their creator, Jen Angel. And um, she unfortunately died on Thursday from injuries that she suffered following a car break-in near Wells Fargo Bank in downtown Oakland on Monday. She was dragged 50 feet by a getaway car after she tried to chase down the suspects. And family and friends say that Angel saw many instances of violence and theft as related to larger systemic issues around poverty and racism. In her passing, they're focusing on restorative justice, which they say was central to Angel's teachings. And um, what they're apparently trying to do is the person that's responsible for this, they are seeking to um, not necessarily seek the full punishment for this crime. On Friday night, the community is hosting a fundraiser with the proceeds going towards a GoFundMe set up in, uh, in Angel's honor. This is a very sad story. And it's a story that uh, has raised a very interesting question. Is if the family of a victim, if a family of a victim wants to seek less of a penalty for someone that uh, injures him or her, should they be able to? Now, this is someone, by all accounts, Jen Angel, who was... A very progressive, I don't even like that term, a very progressive activist. And she was savagely killed during a robbery this week. And her family and friends are urging authorities not to jail her assailants because, according to them, that's not what Jen Angel would have wanted. Her social justice beliefs dictate that these people should get restorative justice. So um, you understand exactly what transpired here. 
She was robbed by two thieves who smashed her car window and ran off with her purse near a bank. Then uh, this 48-year-old woman chased after their car but got caught in the vehicle's door and was dragged more than 50 feet, smashing her head on the sidewalk. She was put in a medically induced coma, and on Thursday she was declared dead. She was an admitted anarchist. She was a longtime social activist. She did not believe in what she called state violence. She did not believe in incarceration. She did not believe in carceral punishment. Uh, She believed that uh, there were other solutions to social violence and uh, that uh, this kind of thing only furthered inequity. And so her loved ones wrote on this GoFundMe page that to put these people, these suspects who are known to police but still on the loose as of Friday, to put them in jail would not be in keeping with Jen Angel's wishes. So her loved ones are urging the city to honor her memory by making sure that they don't do hard time. If caught, the uh, GoFundMe page is is, uh, asking authorities to offer some sort of alternative punishment. You want to know how much this GoFundMe page has raised so far? More than $140,000. The group who's organized the GoFundMe, her family and friends, they said they'd be open to alternatives to traditional prosecution, such as restorative justice. One of Angel's friends, Emily Harris, spoke with San Francisco's ABC affiliate about the murder. We're really trying to orient towards her brilliant life um, and actually that she's not a person that would support the policing and imprisonment of the people who harmed her. Feels like there's absolutely an opportunity for us to stand in her values and support the world that she wants by actually showing that something different than traditional policing and prosecution is possible and is how we can have accountability. So my question for you is, if someone is killed, what say should their family and or friends have in influencing the punishment for that perpetrator. Now, we know there is influence that they that they have. Uh, the Kennedy family has generally been opposed to the death penalty. So when Sir Her- Sirhan Sirhan was arrested for murdering Robert F. Kennedy Sr., the family asked that the death penalty not be considered, and it wasn't. He was not a candidate. He was didn't end up being tried in a death penalty case because the family asked for it. What consideration should be given to the family's wishes and to the wishes of her peers? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, Emily Harris, that woman that we just played you, what she is saying, she's an anti-prison director, and she said that this baker, Jen Angel, was her first political mentor and that Jen believed that using prison to punish individuals actually prevented both victims and aggressors of crimes from actually healing. Locking up, this is the words of Emily Harris, locking up the people responsible for her friend's death would only perpetuate more harm. That doesn't mean there isn't accountability that we would want for the perpetrators, 
What that could look like isn't about putting a person into further harm, but understanding how we're going to prevent this from happening to the next Gen Angel. Pete uh, Pete Wywood told the San Francisco Chronicle that Angel regularly turned to the community for help and support in times of trouble, including when a speeding car crashed through her bakery's window and caused major damage four years ago. A year later, she reached out to her neighbors and friends for financial assistance again when an unhinged man used a paving stone to smash her store's window. Uh, The Oakland police have told the San Francisco Chronicle that they're investigating this case as a homicide. Major crimes in Oakland are down 9% through February 5th compared to the same period last year. What do you think? Um, And look, you might not agree with Jen Angel's politics, but let's say you did. Let's say she was somebody that was super conservative and a very tough-on-crime person. And her family and friends were saying, you know, what Jen would want is to really throw the book at these people and seek the maximum possible sentence. Should that be considered? Um, My view is that uh, this is totally ludicrous. And look, I, I think you know from the comments that I've made that people in prison have no better friend on the radio than me. That being said... The And I think there are a ton of people in prison and in jail right now that don't belong there. That being said, you know who I think belongs in prison? The people that hurt people. The people that are going to hurt people if they're not locked up. That is these people to a T. And to say that anything, justice or... uh inequity, that anything can be helped by letting these, and I hate to use this term because it's overused, but by letting these thugs out on the street to rob someone else, do violence against someone else, and drag someone else 50 feet, it's staggering to me. The way to stop the next Gen Angel from being killed is not restorative justice once these people are caught. It's to keep these people in prison. 800-848-9222. I can't stress enough. I am somebody that was all for the First Step Act. I'm all for letting people out of prison. I'm all for making the prison process as much of a rehabilitative process as possible. This is lunacy. If Jen Angel or any of her friends want to make changes to the criminal statutes, what's a crime and what the penalties should be for a crime, they should run for uh, the state legislature in California or maybe a prosecutorial office in California. Uh, I don't think that we should take, I don't think we should put much stock into what the victim's families say on this, in this respect. Sorry. What say you? 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Patricia in Mamaroneck. Hello, Patricia. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. I mean, I guess I have a different opinion because if somebody had hurt somebody in my family, I would be really, really mad and they would have to pay some way. I mean, I know it's not like, you know, you can go out and hurt them back, but... There should be something that if they're going to hurt somebody, 
they need to pay some kind of penalty for it, or they're going to keep doing it. Right. Well, that, that's mean, exactly my view. So you don't agree yeah. that just because this is what Jen Angel would have wanted, that the uh, prosecutors in in Oakland should go along with this? I think it's all crazy is what I think. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm not even listening to it. I feel like I'm in a dream, <laughs> to be honest with you, because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, you, it's now, a crime. I agree with you, Patricia. Uh, thank you very much. And the thing that's amazing to me about this is that they have raised $138,000 from people that agree with this. 800-848-9222. Carolyn is in Maryland. Hello, Carolyn. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I, I I kind of agree with you guys. I mean, I do appreciate the sentiment of of, you know, Jen Angel's family wanting to promote, you know, a more peaceful way and, and, you know, help everybody and, and, um, and things like that. But, you know, the, the, the system has to apply to everyone. And at the end of the day, they, they don't have the right to speak for everyone's, you know, feelings. And you can't, you know they they certainly deserve the right to to express how the situation affected them and and how they you know they do feel by it but they you know they also i don't really think have the right to speak you know for her i i agree with you completely carolyn uh thank you not so much that they don't have the right to speak for her but they don't have the right to speak for me or someone else that could be hurt by these people. Let's say, let's take this whole thing to its logical conclusion. Let's say um, that the prosecutor said, all right, Jen Angel would have wanted restorative justice. The community wants restorative justice. Her family wants restorative justice. And the friends of Jen Angel don't want her in, uh, don't want her killers in prison. We're going to seek some other non-incarceration penalty for these people. Let's say they went that route. Okay. Then let's say these two people go out and do this again to someone else. How would the family of that person or persons view the advocates of Jen Angel that got these killers freed? That's why when you make a decision to uh, go against what the letter of the law is, then you're not just doing what's right for Jen Angel. You're you're screwing everybody over. That's my view. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. David is in Rockland. Hello, David. Hey, how you doing, sir? Good, thanks. Um, yeah, I'd like to comment on what you said, and I think I personally um, really agree with you that, I mean, it's not fair that if, let's say, you have uh, you have a, a criminal who violently does something to someone, whatever it may be, if that person isn't taken care of, however that may be, let's say, putting the person behind bars, then that person could just go ahead and go out and do something even the same or even worse to the next person. And we need we need to keep these people off the street so they don't do something like that. 
Uh, David, I, I completely agree with you. And look, and I appreciate the call. I'm all for having this debate. I'm all for having the debate about whether or not restorative justice is an effective means of uh, reducing crime and making society a better place in general. Let's have that debate. But the law is the law. And right now, if you drag someone 50 feet and kill them because you smashed their head on the sidewalk because they were chasing after you as you robbed them, that doesn't call for a non-prison penalty. I would think that calls for a pretty lengthy prison penalty. So if you want to have that debate, run for state legislature and make that your platform. But I think once the law is the law, that's it. That's it. You don't get to put another victim at risk because the victim in this case happened to be an anarchist. 800-848-9222. Uh, let's say hello to uh, Simon in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yes, yes, Frankie. Good, good afternoon. Morning. Um, I, I, the justice system already failed years ago, going back the last seventy-five years. We know it, and now it's coming out to haunt us for because it takes two to tangle. You know how many people sat in jail for no reason? How many people took pleas and bargains because they didn't do the crime? And we see movies and graded on all kinds of um, situations. And now it's it's a terrible what's going on. The justice system is distraught. I don't even think it's ever going to come back because what's going on, it's going to take a long time. It's not going to be overnight, and we're, it might get worse before it gets better. But this is going on for already 100 years, and um, we kept quiet. Well, you know, when you say it's going prison. on for 100 years, what's going on for 100 years? It's going on. Let's, there's people sitting in prison, and they didn't do the crime. And the prosecutors say, you want a deal, just take a cap a deal, well, even if you didn't do the crime. I, I, so, I, I, agree with, I agree with that very much, Simon. But I guess I'm not clear how that relates to this Jen Angel oh, case. So, okay, so Jen Angel is another story. I understand what's, you know, uh, what's going on with the, with the crime in all over Manhattan. People are getting killed and shot, and it's like uh, the Wild West now. But it led – this led – from for 80 years of the justice system has failed us, and it, it was it takes takes two to tangle. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fault, and you know, and I think it just exploded. Well, a lot look, of people I... sitting in jail for 35, 40 years, they didn't do the crime, and then they realized after. The DNA comes out. Oh, let him go now. What you, uh, Simon, I, I, I nobody talks about that uh, more than me. Nobody uh, on the radio. And thank you for the call. And look, when I did a whole commentary the other day about um, these people who are sentenced in federal cases for acquitted conduct, they're acquitted of a crime and then they're sentenced as if they did commit the crime. And I'm hoping the Supreme Court will hear that case and discontinue that practice. To me, I don't think any of what you just alluded to is at play here. Uh, I don't. I mean, if the laws are not doing the right thing here, if they're unjust, let's change them. But the way to, um, I don't know, the way to seek justice or end inequity is not to let a killer off the hook for killing someone. Sorry. 800-848-9222. Uh, Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Yeah, I think she wanted restorative justice till, till she was getting dragged down the street and knew she was going to die in about two minutes. Then she probably wanted to kill them people herself. 
Well, look, Ray, I, um, look, this is always the danger of trying to speak for dead people uh, because who knows what her view of the situation would be now. But um, I, I assume that her friends and family are right. She probably wouldn't want these people to go to prison. My view is, who cares? My view is that uh, they should go to prison because we don't want them to kill someone else. We'll continue with your calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. be honest, I don't know if I've ever heard this. Uh, this is Square Biz by Tina Marie. This is a uh, selection of Thurman Henry, who was celebrating his birthday on Friday, but we're just getting around to honoring his birthday bumper music wishes. We're a little bit behind. Sometimes it takes us a couple of days to get the rights to these songs and get them in the rotation, but hopefully uh, that did not keep Thurman, who was who I worked with at another radio station, uh, hopefully, and he was a very talented radio professional and follows the radio scene very closely. Hopefully that did not stop him from having a great birthday celebration and getting his uh, birthday wishes fulfilled. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with the uh, discussion of Jen Angel. I hope you had a great Valentine's Day uh, yesterday. Uh, our Valentine's Day was, um, you know, fairly, I don't want to say it was uneventful, but we didn't really go out or anything. We, um, you know, Rachel worked until 5, and then once 5 o'clock came around, I used that as an opportunity to begin working on the show, and uh, we did have dinner. We we ordered in. We got some Japanese food, which was delicious, and uh, I got Rachel some candy, and uh, and Carmine and I both got her a card. That was uh, so. It was nice. Neither neither Rachel nor nor me are big Valentine's Day people, so it was uh, far from the worst Valentine's Day that I'd ever had. I was trying to. Sometimes you try to think. When there's a day, when there's an annual day, or even a biennial day, not to mention a semi-weekly day, but you try and go back and say, what was I doing a year ago? What was I doing two years ago? What was I doing five years ago? So that is an area where, as critical as I am of smartphones and social media from time to time, that's an area where social media can be very helpful because it popped up 10 years ago with a photo reminder of what I was doing 10 years ago yesterday on Valentine's Day. And you know where I was? I <laughs> I was working at a radio station in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, and it's Valentine's Day. 
and I was working with Curtis Lee at the time. And I was driving. I was going to drop Curtis off at the train and because he had to get back into Manhattan, and I was going to drive back to where I lived and go out on a date later in the evening with my girlfriend. And so we wrapped up the show around 10, probably hit the road about 11, 11.30, and uh, we're driving in my uh, Ford Taurus at the time, and uh, the car runs out of gas. Runs out of gas. And this is 10 years ago. This is before you can really uh, immediately call AAA to get gasoline. Or I guess you could have at the time. I don't know why we didn't. Maybe we thought there was another alternative. It's before you could uh, use your phone as everything from a a tracking device to a a map to everything else. So we get – we're stranded on the side of the road. My car broke down and ran out of gas. We're stranded on the side of the road, and Curtis – starts pushing the car in the direction that we were going. So I'm driving, I'm steering the car, and Curtis is pushing the car. And he's not doing a bad job. He's doing pretty well. Until we get to uh, a portion of the highway that we were on or the road that we were on that is uphill. And at that point, obviously, he can't push a car uphill. So we're stranded. We're stranded. Now, the nice thing, being stranded with Curtis Lewa, is... That's like being stranded with a human flare gun because he's dressed in a giant red outfit. He's got a red sateen jacket and a red beret. And we're stranded on the side of the road. Uh, Curtis is uh, calling whoever he's calling on his guardian angel, walkie-talkie, letting them know that he's going to be late. I'm trying to figure out how to get to a gas station. Luckily, because I'd run out of gas before, I had a gas can in the back of the, in the trunk. So I got my gas can, and I start walking to a gas station. But sure enough, seconds after I start walking, somebody pulls over and says, Hey, Curtis, what's going on? And it was not somebody that knew Curtis, just someone that knew who he was. And not meaning they didn't know him personally. They were just a fan. And so he says, Hey, can you help us out? We're trying to get some gasoline. So this guy, to his credit, and uh, it takes me to a nearby gas station maybe about a half mile away. And I'm thinking, this is great. My luck, I'm going to be able to get the gas, go back to the car, and uh, I am going to fill the fill the gas tank, drop Curtis off, go on with my day, take my girlfriend out for a nice Valentine's Day dinner, and this will be nothing but a minor inconvenience. Well, of course, this is me we're talking about, and it's Curtis. So it's never going to be only a minor inconvenience, right? So this fella drops me off at the gas station. I fill my gas tank with gasoline. And I start walking back in the direction that I am pretty sure that I came. And I get lost. Can't find Curtis. And I said, okay, well, maybe I made a wrong turn there. Let me go back and try this again. I get lost again. Now, Curtis is waiting 35, 40 minutes. He's calling me. He's trying to give me directions based on where he was. And again, this is pre-smartphone and that kind of thing. So you can't really just say, oh, I'm here. And then you say, oh, you're there? Well, and we're on the, basically the side of the road in the middle of nowhere in New Jersey. I mean, it was, I don't want to say it was nowhere because it was crowded, but there was nothing around. It was not like Curtis was standing in front of a deli that he could go in and say, oh, what's the address? No, I mean, we're, we're nowhere. And I'm walking around Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, carrying a gas can filled with two gallons worth of gasoline. 
ultimately, I continue walking around. Now, me, meantime, I want you to understand, at most, this gas station was a half a mile away from where we broke down. So then, it all, all told, it takes about two and a half hours for me to be reunited with Curtis and my car. I was ultimately reunited with Curtis and my car. I filled the gas tank, uh, dropped Curtis off. He's only about two and a half hours late now. I am not only very late, but uh, very filthy. I'm just covered in filth, covered in grease and oil. My I reek of gasoline and dirt, and just it's just disgusting. And you can imagine how thrilled my girlfriend was at the time to not only have me pick her up late, but to see me just covered in filth. Can't imagine why we ended up breaking up. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Oh, the one thing about yesterday that did irk me is we sent my mother-in-law and my mom flowers for Valentine's Day from Carmine. You know, and us too. Obviously, Carmine's not in a position to be able to order things on his own. But we sent her her flowers, both of them, my mother-in-law and my mom, flowers. So my mother-in-law's flowers arrived just fine. All day long, we had arranged for my mother to get flowers at her job. Because, you know, she likes to brag about her grandson and... Uh, Everybody at work has seen pictures of the grandson a hundred times. I think she really, even though she would never say this, I think she would really get a kick out of having flowers and a nice card from her grandson at work because it's a very, it's a very odd workplace that she works at. I don't want to get into that, but uh, I think she would be really proud of that. So we're waiting all day, Rachel and me, for an SMS text message or a phone call saying thanks for the flowers or a picture from the flowers. Nothing. So it's winding down to about 5 o'clock. And Rachel says to my mom, did you get these flowers? And my mom says, no, didn't get anything. So my mom says, oh, you know, I don't need them. Just just cancel them and get the credit back. We paid $100 for these flowers and for the delivery of these flowers. And then I said to Rachel, go online. And apparently she ordered them with a very reputable flower company. It's called uh, FTD. Flowers, which is uh, well known and has they Rachel's used them before. She has a long history with them. And I said, go online and see what the story is, what they're saying. And the the fine print on this says that if you order to a workplace, that it'll be delivered between nine a.m. and six p.m. We're looking at now six fifteen, six thirty, nothing. It just says delivery scheduled. So then, ultimately, we're checking again later in the evening, they delivered these flowers to her office at 7 p.m. Meanwhile, I'm going to try and definitely get our money back here because if they're going to claim that they're delivering between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., how can they deliver at 7 p.m.? Makes no sense. Didn't like that at all. So uh, hopefully she'll get the flowers tomorrow and she'll still be able to show them off a bit. And then uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be able to get the money back. Oh, the other thing, on the subject of deliveries, we had a whole bunch of bad delivery experiences today. So far, the only guy that lived up to my expectations was the gentleman that delivered my Japanese food. And uh, he, uh, oh, although they, I was supposed to get brown rice in the roll that I ordered and it was white rice. But that, that's neither here nor there. 
he had change. He delivered. Fine. The Our cat, Bathsheba, is on this medication for chemotherapy. And so uh, we've had very good experiences with this company that delivers her chemotherapy drugs. And they come and, uh, you know, Rachel has all these reasons why they're so great. And and they are from everything she says. So I was even going to tip this guy $3. The range of times that this guy could come is between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. No, between 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. So uh, Rachel's in bed by, you know, by 10 or so. And I have to leave for work by 10, 10, 15 at the latest. So I'm not going to be home if he comes closer to 11. Now, I could see when these guys arrive because of uh, the, you know, you know, the ring camera. We could see who's in front of our house. They arrived. Again, they claim they were coming between 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. They arrived at a quarter after 12. Quarter after 12. An hour and 15 minutes after the window that they gave us. So now her chemo medication is just sitting out there. I think it's fine. I think it's in sort of a refrigerated bag. Should be fine until I get home. But, uh, I mean, what's the point, whether you're delivering flowers or chemo medication, what's the point in giving a window of when the delivery will be if you're not going to stick with it? What's the point? It's like uh, the Jerry Seinfeld bit about uh, taking car rental reservations and not honoring them. Anybody can just take them. Anybody can tell you that chemo or flowers are going to be delivered in this window. It's actually delivering them. That's the challenge. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. But, hey, maybe they got lost as I got lost carrying a uh, can of gasoline to uh, visit uh, to try and find Curtis Lewa. Let me say hello to David in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, David. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Good. Sure. You know, regard. Regarding your, you know, the issue about the, the the family trying to have a say in changing the law or or having the impact on judges, that's we have laws of the land that need to be followed. We have judges are hired to make judgment on what sentencing is. And as you alluded to earlier, if you want to change the law, run as a legislator or support law that has restorative justice principles. But you can't, you can't. No matter no matter how close you are to a person who was a victim, you can't. I don't think should have influence over what the justice system that has been created through legislation and, and laws to, can be impact or changed. So I 100% agree with your, your angle on yeah. this. What do you make of the fact that uh, this, this GoFundMe has already raised $138,000? That's interesting. You know, I don't know what they're going to do with that money um, other than, I guess, promote the cause that the woman supported. Um, I mean, what's it for? I mean, I mean, what, what can you do with it? I mean, I guess that, I mean, raise awareness, support uh, restorative justice principles in the justice system, you know, or, or principles, you know, it's, I mean, which I disagree. I, I, I think if anything is shown that the leftist DAs that exist, we we see you know recidivism of violent criminals and history has shown if we don't put them away that crime and violence will you know there's recidivism and people will be violated and victimized so i mean that's human nature it's not it's not something that's going to change you know anytime soon it's been that way for several hundred thousand years so you know um 
the whole idea of restorative justice seems to be almost somewhat absurd. Um, I mean, we want to rehabilitate, but when you have you know violent criminals and people of violent behavior, if they're not properly incarcerated, um, you're, you're basically enabling them to violate somebody else right. again. I mean, that's exactly my yeah. view, David. Thank you. And by the way, I would love to hear, uh, because so far everyone has, at least in some form, agreed with me. If you disagree, we will put you to the front of the line because, uh, to me, that's the most boring thing in the world. Uh, I give my opinion, and then this person says, I agree. That, that person says, oh, I agree. Oh, you know, no, 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 not me. I really agree. Well, if you disagree, I'd like to hear why. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hi, Pamela. Uh, hi. Um, yeah, if a true believer in anarchy and uh, the philosophy of restorative justice should have allowed the thieves to escape with her car and pocketbook. I'm not being facetious. I'm being serious. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that was interesting also. She didn't say, oh, here you go, robbers. You know, take my car, take my uh, pocketbook. She went after them and gave chase, uh, apparently pretty aggressively. So uh, I thought that's a good point. Uh, I, I thought the same thing, Pamela. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you know, if you believe in something, just let them go. And, and not. I'm not taking it out on the victim or anything, but she would, you know, hopefully be alive right now and, and well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that That's a very good point, which I neglected to mention. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Gary is on Staten Island. Hello, Gary. Oh, uh, thank you, Frank. Uh, and um, Norman Mailer, uh, this is reminding me of how uh, Norman Mailer had sponsored or championed the cause made a cause celeb of a man who had been in prison named Jack Abbott and uh, made something of a hero of him. He wrote a book called Belly of the Beast. Yep. And uh, Mailer made uh, a champion the cause of this man getting out of uh, jail only to be embarrassed. Norman Mailer was embarrassed subsequently when Jack Abbott went out and killed somebody, I believe, in the Lower East Side. Yeah, um, you know, I read uh, Norman Mailer's daughter's book recently, and she does deals a little bit with that uh, with that case. And uh, th- yeah, it was uh, Susan Mailer is uh, is the author of that book. It's a really good book. But yeah, I, I actually do think there are some similarities. I think it's a little bit different because Norman oh, sure. Ma- Norman Mailer was uh, uh, vouching for this guy as a writer. And the guy apparently was a pretty good writer. Um, but your point's well taken that uh, – your point's well taken. Uh, 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. I think that I sort of agree with your position, but I'll differ this way. I think the time for these people to come forward, family members or friends, is during sentencing. Uh-huh. Because the job of the prosecution – is to protect all of the people. That's why it's the people versus whoever. So it's the job of the prosecution to go with the maximum charge they can. But if family members or clergy or whoever wants to come forward during sentencing and say, you know, these people deserve a break or they should be 
sent to jail forever. That's the time for this. And this happens all the time. I mean, you know that there are times when family members come forward because of religious purposes or whatever and ask for mercy for the, the defendant. So let it play out that way because, you know, it's a free country. People are entitled to express their opinion. But it should be during sentencing, yeah. not before. David, I agree with you. That's a great point. Uh, but um, let's say we get to that point and we get to sentencing and all of her friends and family make the same sort of plea. What weight do you think the judge should give to her family's wishes if they say, look, this is what Jen would have wanted. She was not a believer in incarceration, and we're asking you to find some sort of non-incarceral punishment for these people. What weight do you think the judge should give to that? I Honestly, very little. I think the mm-hmm. job of a judge is to, to implement the sentences, sentences as they are written and as they're intended, and clearly the criminal law doesn't have much space for this type of thing. Right, exactly. So, unfortunately for the uh, criminals or alleged criminals, they should have the book thrown at them from my perspective. Thank yeah, you, thank you, David. You know, I think it would almost be a little bit of a, a different ball game. is if, let's say, it was just a straight-up robbery, right? Uh, it's not that much of a different ballgame, but let's say it was just a straight-up robbery. Let's say they robbed $1,000 from this, from this woman, and the police arrested them, the prosecutors prosecuted them, and then the victim could get there and say, look, sure, they took $1,000 of my money. I'd like that $1,000 back. And I'd like them to owe me the $1,000. But I don't think the cause of justice is served by putting these people in prison. Okay, then maybe I could deal with that. But uh, a crime of this magnitude, which results in a person being killed, uh, I think this is I – mean, I almost feel like I've spent too much time talking about this because I think the argument is just so silly. And I, I, I the reason I did want to mention this – one, because I, I was curious what people would say about what role the uh, friends and family members of victims should have in in terms of deciding punishment for people. You know, I remember the, you remember the movie My Cousin Vinny. Not that My Cousin Vinny should be taken as gospel, but the prosecutor is asking the prospective jurors in the voir dire process. He's asking, um, yes, one woman would you have difficulty serving on a trial like this knowing that the possible outcome was the death penalty? And what she says is, I think it should be left up to the victim's families what the punishment is. Now, ultimately, the prosecutor, it's kind of a funny exchange, and she changes her tune. I don't want to spoil it for you. You should see it. My cousin Vinny just celebrated its 30th anniversary. It's still just as funny today as it was uh, 30 years ago. I remember seeing it in theaters. But um, this idea of taking victims, family members' wishes into account is not a new one. I guess the the difference in this day and age is that the trend of de-incarceration, of restorative justice, that is something that's very trendy now, which wasn't the case 20 or 25 years ago. And again, I, I always hate to be on the side of the lock them up crowd because – that's not my view. Uh, you know, I, I think there are, there are way too many people in prison. I'm not for mandatory minimums. And I think that we can look for a lot of rehabilitative programs. Not for these people. These people belong in prison. 800-848-9222. Michael's in Manhattan. Hi, Michael. Uh, good morning. Morning. Frank, you mm-hmm. asked for people who disagree with you. 
I, I disagree with you to a certain degree. I, I agree with you on a lot of your points, but I think the problem with the criminal justice system is that the focus is on punishment and there's no rehabilitation, no effort to address mental health issues in the prisons. For example, people with schizophrenia are not given any medication or medicine, psychiatric medicines. They're not given any uh, counseling or psychiatric counseling. They're not given any, any kind of support. They're just left to fend for themselves. And then they come out of prison and uh, they're possibly worse, or worse mentally than when they went in. So they're more likely to commit crimes. So recidivism is, is actually encouraged by our, our uh, criminal justice system. Uh, they take the shoelaces away from prisoners so that they won't commit suicide, but they don't give them any, any um, psychiatric care or any kind of support. And when they leave the prison, they're on their own. So they're more likely to commit another crime. But I, I agree with you that people that commit a, a, a serious crimes need to be punished. I think the, la the problem is that the, the punishment and the rehabilitation are not balanced. Uh, Michael, I, I agree with everything you said, right? I mean, I don't think uh, uh, time in prison should be oppressive. I, I think that um, uh, time in prison, to the extent that it can be used to further people's education, to uh, help them break whatever uh, drug addiction problems they may have, uh, to help people with whatever mental illness issues they have, I think that uh, sh I think that's all great. But well, I, think, um, I, I think that the problem is our, our criminal justice system is a mirror reflection of our society in general. I think it was a Russian writer. I think it was Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, yes. Uh, crime and punishment. Dostoevsky. Crime and punishment. I think our society, uh, the our criminal justice system, reflects our society in general, which is the lack of rehabilitation. You mentioned rehabilitation, but I think the problem is that the focus is on punishment. I have to admit that I've been very conflicted about the death penalty, that people that commit these serious crimes where they should be put. To, you mentioned Sirhan Sirhan. I, I've always been very conflicted about the death penalty, whether the people should be put to death or just given life imprisonment. But there's something, something about our society that focuses on punishment. And I think this, uh, this uh, restorative justice is trying to push the pendulum to the other extreme, which right. is instead of punishing people, sort of just uh, not punishing them at all. It's right. like an extreme. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, I think your analysis is spot on, Michael. I think this is an extreme in the other direction. Uh, we've gone from locking people up for 25 years for stealing a slice of pizza, if it's their third crime, uh, to letting them off or attempting to let them off, as in the case of Jen Angel's friends and family, with a slap on the wrist when someone is dead. So uh, I'm going to move on uh, because, uh, honestly, I find the story kind of unseemly and sad. Um, unseemly is the wrong word. But I find it sad. And uh, I was just curious if anybody could make a strong case for what Jen Angel's family is urging and uh, so far, I haven't heard anybody do that. So you know the story, you know what they're saying, and you know my opinion on it. So that's that. We're moving on. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The great Solomon King singing She Wears My Ring. As some of you are still hopefully in the afterglow of Valentine's Day, this is one of the greatest love songs of all time. A lot of people have sung it. Uh, Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, many others. There is nobody who has um, sung it as well as Solomon King. This was his greatest hit. 1968 hit single it charted in 40 countries and we're trying to single-handedly bring back Solomon King unfortunately who was a friend of mine and in addition to being a great talent was one of the greatest uh, characters I've ever encountered I you know I have to I have a lot of my interviews with Solomon King on other tape formats that we don't use here uh, DVC Pro mini-DV, and VHS, I have to find a way to transfer it to something that we can play because the wisdom and the comedy of uh, Solomon King is just without peer. And so we're trying to single-handedly bring back the music of Solomon King to a new generation, much like the way we did with uh, Mr. Dabalina, right? Nobody had heard of Mr. Dabalina before, at least the remake of it, before Matt Blaze decided to play it. And now most people agree it's the greatest song of all time. So um, we're trying to do the same thing with Solomon King's music. By the way, if you did not hear my interview last week with Colonel Douglas McGregor, you are missing out. So I got an email from our, uh, our uh, I don't know what his title is, but I think it's Chief of Staff or Director of Operations. The podcast that we did with Douglas McGregor has more views on the, that page where the podcast is than anything else that the podcast network has put out in the last week. I mean, on his own, it's just staggering. So they're eager to get me to have him back. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Does everybody else find this UFO story as laughable as I do? Meaning you laugh to keep from crying. So, okay, the Chinese spy balloon emerges. It goes across the United States. It's shot down. Okay, people have varying views about how that was handled. Okay. Then... Friday, Saturday, Sunday, object, 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 shot down, shot down, shot down. The head of NORAD, the U.S. Air Force general in charge of NORAD, says, uh, you know, when asked if could this be extraterrestrial, he says, well, we can't take anything off the table. Very reasonable, struck me as a very honest response from the military. People start going crazy. Lo and behold, uh, the a- a- spokesperson for the Pentagon, Admiral Kirby, the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, they run out and say, no, 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 no. Uh, th- they weren't extraterrestrial. Oh, okay. Well, what were they? Oh, uh, we don't know. But they weren't extraterrestrial. Then the next day, yesterday, they come out and say not only were they not extraterrestrial, but they were not Chinese. So we're left to wonder, what were they? Well, we got a little more insight on this question. Uh, we've already shot down these three items that uh, that we were certain were not extraterrestrial and not Chinese uh, before, before Corinne Jean-Pierre made these comments. This is what she said yesterday. And again, I've, you've heard from um, Secretary Austin on this. You've heard from DOD on this. You've heard from my National Security Council colleagues. Uh, again, as you all know, the, the objects uh, that were shot down were in the uh, uh, civilian airspace, uh, kind of flying low, uh, low elevation. And so it was shot down. They were shot down uh, because of uh, they w- we were taking uh, abundance of caution. Uh, we wanted to make sure Americans were safe. Uh, we wanted to make sure uh, that uh, the civilian aircraft flying uh, above in, in, the, in our airspace were safe. And that's why they were taken down, uh, the three objects. As you all know, they are now uh, being recovered. The weather conditions have prevented uh, for, uh, for um, the Pentagon to go out there and and get those objects, but we're going to continue uh, to try. We're going to continue uh, to be uh, vigilant on getting these uh, getting the debris. Uh, but in the meantime, as you just mentioned, the the benign statement, the intelligence uh, community did say uh, that they are considering or looking this at this to be uh, potentially benign. But of course, we want to make sure that uh, we uh, get the objects so we can actually or the debris from the objects, just to be more clear, uh, so we can get a sense of what. Uh, what uh, what the objects were for certain. So the intelligence community says these objects were benign. We still don't exactly know what these objects were, except for the fact that according to the government, they were not extraterrestrial and not Chinese. And by the way, on top of this, do you know how we shot down these objects, these benign objects, these non-Chinese, non-extraterrestrial objects? They were shot down with Sidewinder missiles. Do you know how much it costs to fire one Sidewinder missile? $400,000 for one missile. The, one, of the, one of these objects, they fired a missile at it, and it missed. It missed. And then they fired another one, and it hit it. So on one of these objects, it cost $800,000. Of taxpayer money to take down this sidewind, this uh, benign, non-Chinese, non-extraterrestrial object. Figure the other ones just cost four hundred thousand dollars each. If we're being 
um, conservative. Is anybody else? I feel like I'm living in the world with the emperor having no clothes. So I find this whole situation very suspicious. And I have been meaning to uh, talk with Stephen Bassett for a while now. He is the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group and a leading advocate for ending the uh, government-imposed truth embargo regarding extraterrestrials. And uh, I was eager to get his take on this and everything else that's uh, that's happening. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's great to talk with you again. Excellent. Happy to be with you, friend. Stephen, for people that have not heard our uh, previous conversation, r- remind folks what exactly uh, Paradigm Research Group is. Uh, I set it up as a political activist in 96 with one goal, to uh, resolve the extraterrestrial UAP issue by political means, because science had already been pretty much proven and it was true. Uh, but the government was going to accept that science because the whole issue was embargoed from the American people for national security reasons. 26 years later, still at it, but boy, are we closing in on the finish line. And so I am a political activist. Now, there are people out there that are going to analyze the technology and the mechanics of all this down to the last circuit board, like the fellows over at The Drive. And there's a huge amount of information out there now who's been covered by media all around the world. So people can familiarize yourself with the history of these five, six days. Uh, I'm going to try to approach it from an activist perspective and give a little larger picture and point out the, I think, the most amusing aspects of it. Now, uh, the uh, Politico magazine, which is sort of the go-to political magazine that's read by pundits and people that follow uh, Inside the Beltway stuff, they referred to you as Washington's UFO lobbyist. Is that a fair characterization? It, it, not, not, not anymore. Uh, I, I got called that because my entrance was to register as a lobbyist in 96 on this issue. No one had ever done it before. Of course, no one got, gets paid to do something like that. I registered as a part of a number of organizations, research organizations, so I called it the Paradigm Research Group. That's just one thing I've done. I've done all kinds of activism in the next 26 years. Uh, uh, and as, while I am a, quote, registered lobbyist, I am really a disclosure advocate, uh, a political activist, even an anti-war uh, activist. Uh, so that's fine, but that's that doesn't really uh, fully describe me. Let's talk about this, this issue with these objects that keep getting shot mm-hmm. down out of the sky. What's your take mm-hmm. on this? What do you think this is? What do you think we're seeing here? First of all, let's, let's put some context to this. Uh, as you probably know, and, and many of your listeners know, uh, I am absolutely certain there's an extraterrestrial presence, advanced non-human technology. I think it comes from other planets. One can disagree, but it's, uh, it wasn't made at Lockheed. Certainly not the stuff back in the 40s. So that's a fact. That's a reality. And there have been untold millions of sightings over the last 70 years and massive amounts of evidence that have come forward. And soon we will be some, seeing some of that evidence test, uh, testified to uh, in front of major committees in the United States Congress. Uh, I happen to think disclosure or the formal confirmation of this ET presence will occur very possibly this spring. All right. So that's one context. Now, the other context is that uh, the U.S. government has extremely sophisticated surveillance of its airspace, as does China, as does Russia, UK, France. All of the, the advanced countries have very sophisticated uh, 
surveillance. And of course, uh, the finest airplanes in the world. And they don't let things fly through uh, their airspace without some kind of consequence. All right. Now, the third point. Uh, they also know they're all spying on each other. I think most people know this. Uh, the U.S. is spying on the Chinese, Chinese in the U.S., Chinese in the Russians, Russians on the Chinese, Russians on the U.S., and so forth. Yeah, I think the French and the English are in there having a bit of fun as well. Well, even we learned the Americans and the Germans, right? Didn't we? Uh, Absolutely. Didn't we spy on Angela Merkel's mobile device? All of the countries, to one degree or another, less so, I guess, with the, the more tight, uh, uh, you know, fairly close uh, allies, are all spying on each other. And they know it. And there are certain limits, certain parameters that they follow. I guess you could say a certain amount of diplomatic protocol. In other words, you spy, I spy, but don't don't get carried away. Don't step out of the line. All right. And the reason this is important, and I don't consider it uh, funny, is that this spying, which goes all the way back to the earliest days of the Soviet Union, was absolutely critical in preventing a nuclear war. Because if these countries with these powerful nuclear weapons, and I think eventually there were nine, I think there still is nine, if they have no idea what's going on inside uh, the other's country, particularly an adversary, then it just leads to speculation and paranoia and sure. fear. And that can lead to a mistake. That's why North Korea is so dangerous, because it is the hermit kingdom. It is so locked down that it's really almost impossible to know what's going on there, though we do try. And that's what makes it unusually dangerous. So, again, everybody's spying on everybody else. So... Does the U.S. know that the Chinese send balloons over? Of course they do. Is it possible that we send balloons over? Very likely, unless we have something superior to that. But, okay. So, with that, then, then let's add one more context to the situation. And that is, as it just happens, perhaps accidentally, over the last three years, massively significant events have taken place involving the Congress, involving the Department of Defense, uh, involving the media, in which a massive... Uh, cross-agency working group is being set up. Legislation is being passed. Uh, the pu- coverage of the UAP issue is unprecedented. The, uh, the, the uh, debunking and the skepticism has virtually disappeared. Uh, we're, we're closing in on disclosure. We're closing in on a formal announcement. And in the middle of that, <laughs> a Chinese balloon suddenly becomes an issue for some reason. Now, I'm not sure why. But if I had to guess, is that because of all this activity regarding the public interest in UAP and government and uh, the the, uh, congressional and DOD activities, there's so much coverage. Everyone's looking at the sky. Anything turns up interesting. It's immediately covered like this weird looking cloud over over Turkey, which, you know, some people call it somewhat unusual name. Some call it, I forget, the tubular cloud, whatever. The thing is pretty scary. Big deal. Big deal. Everything in the sky, everybody's looking up. Remember that movie, Don't Look right. Up? Well, everybody's looking up. Okay, so consequently, it doesn't surprise me that maybe this this balloon, which normally would just sail on, suddenly gets somebody's attention. Could have been a private pilot, then he passes it on, gets around. The next thing you know, it's a thing. All right, so now the, the, the balloon, which the United States, I'm sure, wanted to just sail nicely on peaceably across the United States into the Atlantic and goes by, I don't know, on the Nigerians, uh, is a thing. It becomes a political problem for the president. And so they, they made the decision for more than one reason. We're going to shoot this one down. Okay. So they let it fly all the way across and then, because they've been tracking it for a very long time. They tracked it over the Aleutian Islands. And when it got just off the coast of South Carolina, they take it down. Mm-hmm. 
the first thing about, and that's the first thing I noticed that sounded odd. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to be clear before I'm done. I, I think I'm going to describe a situation, which is essentially the, the uh, Keystone cops driving in a clown car, uh, uh, driven by, um, uh, a famous, uh, famous actor at the time. Um, it is pretty interesting. They took it down with a sidewinder missile. It's a balloon. <laughs> you know? And so you, you, you just fire some, some, some nice you know, shells into it, right? Just shoot it up and let it just slowly drop, right? No big deal. Those bullets are cheap. And, and they would probably be more likely to land in one piece. But instead, they sent a sidewinder missile into a balloon. Uh, so right away, I'm going, this is going to be interesting. So your 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 gander was your suspicions were raised at the first of these objects, the balloon. You didn't even have to wait That's for the these other three mystery objects. Absolutely, and and in fact, and and I'll and I'll get back to this when we go further. Mm-hmm. And then very shortly after, we learned that they picked up an object and they decided to shoot it down. And then another, then another. Okay, now let's talk about that for a second. Okay, uh, you know, guess what? The number of objects, kind of like those ones that just got shot down, only sometimes bigger, sometimes a lot bigger, sometimes moving way faster. They fly over us all the time. Right? They're being seen here, there, and everywhere right. and reported to move fine and reported there. And they don't send jets up for those. At least not, not lately. They did back in 52, but they don't send jets up for those to shoot them down. So clearly, these objects must be different than the ones I'm describing. And the difference is simply this. The United States government knows that those objects I just referred to are non-human, extraterrestrial. And right off the bat, uh, you don't shoot them down because you can't, right? And since you can't shoot them down, you're not going to send jets up there to waste their time. And also you send up jets and, 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 and it just, it just curves a stir and draws attention. Very rarely do they ever send jets up when they know they're dealing with UAP phenomena or, or, or extraterrestrial phenomena. A rare example was the, uh, the, the Stevensville case, Texas, and also the Phoenix, Arizona lights in 97. Again, they just don't do this very often. And so, okay. So we, they don't send up jets for the much more interesting and much more exotic, uh, a craft because they, they know they're ET and they can't shoot them down. So don't bother. Okay. So, but they did go after these interesting. All right. Now let's talk about that. Then first, the next thing I learned that amused me was they did not say they were balloons. In fact, they, they're clearly, right. they specifically no balloons, balloons out. Right. That's right. And so right away, boy, got a problem with that. If they're not held up by a balloon, how are they flying? Well, the government sort of admitted they didn't know. <laughs> well, you know, the government's in the business of protecting our airspace by knowing what flies through. And by and large, is any way you can fly through, they know how it's done. So when they say we don't know how they're flying, that is a huge red flag. And so now they're flying. And so they send up the jets to intercede. And on the basis of the fact that they are in airspace at an altitude that could be a problem, that justified the shoot down, which was authorized by both Trudeau and the president, which means the president and Trudeau were briefed on this. Now we're getting higher level all the time. This is starting to really get big. And then I'm going, hmm, all right, fine. How'd you shoot them down? Sidewinder missile, of course. Sidewinder missile? <laughs> What? 
You've got a craft flying over uh, the, the Yukon or Alaska or cruising, you know, over Michigan that you're not sure of the means of propulsion. Boy, you would really like to know how it's doing that, which means you'd like to be able to examine the technology of that craft really in detail. So why wouldn't you just fly up behind it, hit it with some cannon burst and take it down? The first burst didn't work, hit it with another one. So when it went down, there was a good chance it would be more intact. No, let's blow it up in the sky. Thus decreasing the chance that we'll be able to get meaningful information from the wreckage. And I'm going, okay, that really is funny. I was laughing my butt off at that point. But it gets better. Because not long after, I think the second uh, vehicle craft, what do you want to call it? They, they, they say they're about the size of a car. Uh, you know, a Volkswagen. I don't know why they're picking on the Germans, but whatever. <laughs> the point is that they, they, a guy came out of the Pentagon, could have been Kirby, I forget who it was, and said this. We may never be able to find the wreckage. And I'm going, oh, really? Well, first of all, how convenient that is. And by the way, do you know we found the Titanic? Okay. <laughs> Can I list all the things that we have found in 5,000, 10,000 feet of water? Yeah, we're still finding ships from the uh, Spanish Armada. Yeah, we can find those too. And they said, well, it, it landed in the Euron, Lake Euron, and that's, that's water there. And it landed in a, the woods in the Yukon and, and then up on ice shelf up in Alaska. And I go, well, you know, that's, that's a heavy challenge for the United States military to have to go down into the woods or ice sheet and even go underwater to find the wreckage of an extraordinarily significant thing. But this guy, I think, just was ahead of his skis. He, 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 he didn't know what was happening. And it was when that remark was made, we may never find the wreckage, which is very convenient if, if you really don't want to have to talk about this wreckage, that the U.S. government was caught off by guard by this. This is not some planned thing. They are just struggling. They, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. They don't know how to organize it. Uh, it's, it's overtaking them. The media is all over them. And they're just they're literally caught off by surprise. All right, Stephen. And I, that, that intrigues me. I want to I want to yes. pause for a moment, and uh, when we come back, I want to ask you to offer your speculation, uh, maybe informed speculation, on what these objects actually are. And I'm going to ask you to address something that a lot of our listeners have written to me about, which is that maybe uh, this is all uh, just a hoax. A lot of people have speculated that maybe because of the fact that they're saying they couldn't recover these objects, maybe there was no object. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to address those in a moment. This sure, is sure. Uh, the other side of midnight. Uh, we're talking with Stephen Bassett from the Paradigm Research Group will continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, the story du jour 
is these UFOs that keep getting shot down at substantial expense to the U.S. taxpayer that the government either doesn't know or won't say what they are. Here to talk about that and uh, what is happening with the UFO movement in general is Stephen Bassett. He is the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group and uh, one of the most informed men on this subject and a guy that has been uh, working on this area of work for a uh, a long, long time. So, uh, Stephen, I I can tell by your uh, skepticism and the tone in which you describe the situation that you don't necessarily buy the official story here. Give me your take. What do you think these three objects, not the spy balloon, but these subsequent three objects, what do you think they were? All right, let me preface this with this. Uh, skepticism, it's not so much not buying the story. I think what we're seeing is not an orchestrated story. What we're seeing is the government desperately trying to keep up with the situations out of their hand, out of their control because of the enormous interest in the subject now, the activities that have happened the last few years that is bringing the UAP issue finally to Congress and before the American people, the increasing interest of the press and the public, and the, the fact that every every year millions and millions of more people finally figure out, yeah, there's extraterrestrials here, so let's get on with it. And so this is a tough one for them, right, because they're not ready for this. They, they want to have hearings in a very orderly process, and suddenly this is happening. Then the second thing I want to say is this. I just uh, I just want to clarify, if I can, Frank. No member of the government who's spoken out on this has said that this is not extraterrestrial. They have not. Here is what they've said. This is what Jane Pierre said. And, and listen very carefully. She said in the press conference, there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Wanted to make sure the American people knew that. All of you knew that. And it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing about it a lot. Now, what, what did you just say? There is no indication as of the moment she's saying it of, of aliens or extraterrestrial, extraterrestrials, meaning there's no indication yet. So it is a perfectly safe statement. Might even be a true statement, but it hardly rules out extraterrestrials. And then down a little bit later, there is this paragraph that some people might have taken too strongly. And this is one of the articles. A determination was made that even in the absence of much concrete information that could be shared with the public about the three recently downed objects, it would be prudent to publicly rule out as quickly as possible the possibility of extraterrestrial activity. Yeah, it would be prudent to rule it out as quickly as possible. Have they ruled it out? No, they haven't. Okay, now, with that in mind... And considering everything that we know, we know, right? Uh, I will give you my my, my two basic uh, options. But I want to add one more very important fact. And I'm going to be uh, doing a lot of tweeting tonight on this. Uh, most people have forgotten, and the press apparently has forgotten, that you do we do not send up our effing planes. Our F-18, F-16, F-22, F-35, they even sent an F-35 up there, and I think those cost $40 billion or something. We do not send them up to intercept violations of our airspace by unknown vehicles without gun cameras. You film it all. It would be insane not to do that, and that's what we do. 
We have lots of gun camera footage. You may recall five years ago, three examples of gun camera footage were sent to the New York Times, resulting in those amazing stories. And these were three gun camera footages of what very likely could be extraterrestrial craft taken by a skilled F-18 pilots. But there's been no mention at all of these, these planes having gun cameras and the press, um, for some reason, hasn't asked them, but they will because they were tracking one of these things for quite a ways. And so obviously if the planes came right up and actually filmed the darn thing, I guess the government already has a pretty good idea how they, uh, how they look. And once again, no means of propulsion has been put forward. If they knew there was a means of propulsion, you better believe they would have said so. So what we have here is a craft, which they have photos of, like they've had in other past intercepts, with no means of propulsion, moving at reasonable speeds, but nothing extraordinary, reasonable altitudes, but nothing extraordinary, right, that uh, uh, they felt they needed to shoot down. So now, these are the only two possible theories that I can come up with now. And they go like this. Here's number one. Balloon, uh, one of the Chinese balloons crosses America, gets kind of noticed too much, gets in the press, becomes a meme on TikTok, whatever. And it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. Sure. The president and the DOD, you know, why are these Chinese balloons flying across? Well, you're not supposed to notice that. Well, we did. And so eventually they made the decision, we got to shoot this thing down, right? Given the circumstance, we got to make a statement here, shoot it down. But we'll be careful. We wait it gets over water and they shoot it down with a missile, which makes no sense. Okay, fine. But they were, they, I think they got very irritated by the fact that the Chinese, God bless them, denied it and said it was a weather balloon. Now, the United States, the United States military, is not unsympathetic with the idea of labeling a craft, which isn't clearly, you know, what it is, a weather balloon. We've done it in the past, I perhaps recall a few times. And so, nevertheless, they, 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 were, they were embarrassing the president again. Uh, you guys are idiots. You don't know a surveillance balloon. It was a weather balloon. We were checking up on L.A. to see if the drought's going to continue. And that irritated them. And so since they are tracking everything up there, including things that are about the size of a Volkswagen, the equipment they have is really spectacular, right? Because nuclear annihilation is what we're dealing with. This idea they could let a few of those things through. Oh, what if they were nuclear bombs? That would be awkward. And so they decided... We're going to go shoot down a couple of those Chinese drones, similar to the ones that were flying around those ships out there in the Pacific that made a big deal. They, they might have been Chinese drones. Uh, now, again, the propulsion issue still a big deal, but we're just going to go and shoot them down. OK, so and then they made the decision to use missiles to blow them up, uh, which is interesting, uh, which may or may not uh, fit into that scenario. Uh, and then that's my explanation for how this went down. Now, if that explanation is true, I fully expect the Chinese to start shooting down some U.S. drones. Right. They claim is- that there might be uh, th- that there were 10 U.S. Uh, balloons or craft that have made their way over Chinese skies in, recent, sure in recent months. Absolutely. And so they get, and people say, well, that just seems silly. Well, no. Back about 15, 16, 18 years ago. The Chinese, in order to show their space power, and, and that's one of the reasons we have a space force, is that they showed that they could blow up a satellite in space. So they fired a missile up there and blew up one. It was their satellite, but they, they blew it up to make a statement. Of course, that spread space junk all over the place, right, which we don't need any more of. 
Now, the United States saw that and contemplated and thought about it and realized, well, an appropriate response is needed here. Perhaps send the Secretary of State over or maybe hold talks. No, no. What we did was fire a missile and blow up one of our satellites to show that we could do that, too. And that spreads race junk all over the place. So the idea that we would shoot down some drones and they would shoot down some of our drones makes total sense. That's number one. Now let's get to number two. As you probably are aware, Frank, extraordinary progress is being made to resolving this truth embargo and finally getting the process that will lead the president to be able to comfortably and, and nonpartisanly confirm the extraterrestrial presence, probably in a press uh, briefing. It'll be in the East Room of the White House uh, in, in, at the end of the Cross Hall. I've been there. I've been in that room. It'll be packed with press. So we're really getting there. We are moving closely. At the same time, there's a nuclear, uh, I mean, there is a war going on in Ukraine, which is getting worse and worse. And constant talk amongst many nations, including high-level people about, well, we could have a nuclear war. Meanwhile, the bullet of atomic scientists moves the clock to 90 seconds to midnight, closest it's ever been, at defconlevel.com, a very significant site run by former Intel people, once had all six of the seven commands, all at DEFCON 2, which is just before DEFCON 1, which is nuclear war. And so we're in an extremely interesting and dangerous and incredible point in our history. And the activists like myself are, are pursuing disclosure to get that out of the way so we can get in the post-disclosure world. Now, what if the ETs, well, the ETs are watching all of this, I can assure you. I think they've been helping it along in a lot of ways. That's another show. Give me two hours. I'll tell you all about <laughs> it. The point is, is that. You know, given the, the, the situation in Ukraine and the fact that things could blow up at any time, if the ETs felt it was in, a, is in our best interest to get this disclosure thing done as soon as possible, so maybe that might deflect attention and change the, the, the equations. Maybe we can get out from under these various problems we have. Uh, it's possible that some of the drones, which they could fly around up there that you couldn't even touch, they just slowed them down. Put them on a simple course and let us shoot them down. Right. Now, what happens then? Well, the government shoots them down and then eventually they get the debris and the debris is non-human tech. And, and boy, are they under some pressure now because that they would go, oh, my Lord, they're really starting to put the pressure on us here. And now we've got to explain this record. So we got to hide this. In other words, these things are happening. 75 years into a truth embargo that has been enormously difficult to maintain all that time. And all of a sudden, you've got these things happening and they, they, they can't handle it, right? And so letting ETs letting some of their drones get shot down would be a huge problem for the government and would might very well speed up the process, meaning, oh, my God, we can't keep up with this. Let's, let's get this disclosure done, in which case it's an ET-driven aspect. We'll know more. If they actually tell us about the technology when they find it, and they will, and maybe even show us the gun camera footage, which they have, and they might. But my guess is they're going to sit on it as long as they possibly can, though it's going to be very awkward. and It's going to be more stupid press conferences because they need to get disclosure done first. So these kinds of discussions will not be so awkward. All right, quite a bit you you said there. Let me ask you, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Stephen Bassett, Paradigm Research Group, and uh, mm -hmm. you could check out uh, their their website by going to paradigmresearchgroup.com. Um, Stephen, oh, excuse me, paradigmresearchgroup.org, but I think .com works too. I've got both domains, yeah. Let's say it's the first scenario that you mentioned, which is that mm -hmm. they, they are Chinese. 
Why would U.S. officials go out of their way to specifically claim they're not Chinese when they had no problem claiming that the Chinese spy balloon was Chinese in nature? Why would they say these three items aren't Chinese if they are? One reason would be that the balloon was a balloon. Not exactly high tech, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, now, the, the surveillance tech underneath it could have been pretty cool. And you know, hopefully they got some of that. Of course, the Sidewinder missile didn't help. But these other ones are operating with, there may be a mundane explanation for their, their means of propulsion, but the fact that the government can't come right out and say it says that there's something cool going on there. And so they, they don't. They don't want uh, us to be uh, – they don't want to be giving the impression to the American people that, uh, yeah, they're Chinese. And we don't know how they fly. And, Man, that's great technology. You know, that's not, that's not what they want. And so it's in a, by saying they're not Chinese, that takes pressure off them. It also takes pressure off the Chinese a little bit and tries to mitigate the political damage uh, that's already underway. So there's a number of diplomatic reasons why they might play it that way. But I'll be honest with you. I think they get up in the morning. They don't know what the hell they're going to do. And then they come together, come up with something, but then somebody says something stupid. I, I empathize with them. This is a problem of their own making. If they had gotten the damn ET information out and, and confirmed the extraterrestrial presence at 53, which is really the time they should have done it, when the after the fly, flyby over D.C. in 52, the Robertson panel came up with the exact opposite and said, no, 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 we can't tell the people because while the ET stuff is not a threat, uh, the public interest is. And by the way, notice something else. They're going out of the way to say over and over, these objects were not a threat. They were not a threat. They were not a threat. We had to shoot them down because they might run into a 737. Right, with a a $400,000 missile. That's how benign they were. They're right. That's how benign they were. The paper in the Pentagon cost that much. I mean, it's like, like, that's not the issue. Uh, It's that uh, they had to emphasize they're not a threat because guess what? The ET craft are not a threat either. And they don't want to give the wrong impression here. All right. Because if they acknowledge that a Volkswagen size object with an unusual means of flight flying over the U.S. was a threat and had to be shot down. I know a lot of media people that would immediately raise their hand and say, why aren't you shooting down those thousands of other craft that are being reported all the time? And what do you answer to that? So they are having to navigate this extremely complex maze to hopefully get out the other side intact. I I wish them luck, but it's not going to be easy. Whether it's scenario one or scenario two, Do you believe that the government knows what these three objects are and are not telling the public? Or do you believe that they don't know what they are? Uh, It's very possible they've never had one of those in their possession. But only with gun camera footage and up close examination and some other things. One of the pilots, you may recall, indicated that when they were near proximity to the device, they started to lose a little power. It was interfering with their tech. Means they were pretty damn close. Means he got a pretty good shot, which means his gun camera footage must be pristine, right? Again, these are the things that you don't pick up. The people like me, eh, we look for that stuff. Again, it, these equations don't add up because they can't really tell the truth. I, maybe they'd like to, but the situation is way ahead of where they want to be right now, and they're scrambling. And, and if it's an ET play, well played. 
Well played, ETs. A nice job. If it's a Chinese play, well, actually it may not be a Chinese play. In other words, the Chinese didn't want these things to be shot down, but the damn balloon caught so much attention and created a diplomatic problem, we had to go do it. And so there's probably some screw-ups on, on their end as well. Because uh, remember, these things came in from the West. They didn't come in from the East. Uh, they didn't come over the pole, but I think they came in from the West. So uh, there's politics, there's, there's, there's military, there's ETs, there's, there's diplomacy, there's confusion, uh, there's massive media, public attention. This is great stuff. I mean, come on, man. This is great stuff. I'm enjoying the hell out of it, and I don't apologize for that. You, we began the discussion by you saying with some certitude that that there have been extraterrestrial visits to this planet. Uh, to the extent that you can briefly explain to folks who m- might be skeptics on that why you believe that that is not in dispute at all, that there have absolutely been extraterrestrial visits to this planet. Same reason that uh, people sit at a trial for four or five weeks and find some person completely guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of murder and send them to the electric chair. The evidence is massive. It goes back 76 years. Yeah, the evidence is plot. Now, the fact that the government doesn't acknowledge the evidence or ignores it or undermines it is irrelevant. The governments do this. They have the reasons. But that's not about evidence. That's about governance and propaganda and power. The evidence is overwhelming. But if you want to, if you want to get to it real fast, for those of you that have a busy life, <laughs> you know, five kids, whatever, two jobs, and you want to just get, get this issue out of the way, you just go read one book. And I, and I know this sounds a little bit uh, yeah, extreme, but it's a masterpiece. The initial book was written by Tom Schmidt. Well, all three, Tom Schmidt, uh, Tom Carey and Donald Schmidt, right? Two extraordinary researchers that have done the most excessive research on Roswell in terms of witness analysis. And they wrote a book called Witness to Roswell. Read that book. Now, if you want to go a little further, read the next version of it. Kind of the director's cut came out years later, which also included deathbed, deathbed testimony. And then if you really want to go for the, uh, the deluxe uh, approach, you go to the Witness to Roswell anniversary edition that came out uh, even after that. They interviewed hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And you read the book and they put the whole thing together. And there's just not a slight possibility that the Roswell event was anything but a non-human vehicle crashing nearby, possibly two, bodies obtained, crash vehicle obtained, whole thing sequestered and taken off to look at. And over the next four or five years, the government kind of had it, you know, kind of easy, a lot of sightings, nobody too worked up, but there were a lot of sightings, a lot of new activity. And then in 52, a whole bunch of ETs flew over to Washington and scared the hell out of them. And, and uh, then they really got serious about embargoing this. So it's a fact. I'm sorry. You know, uh, it is. And, and, and the number of people that know it to be a fact grows every single year. The polls show this. And if you go in and do, an, uh, do a Google UFO polling, again, I prefer UAP, but UFO is the term you use, UFO polling, you will see the scores of polls that have been done showing that a huge number of the world's people know there's an extraterrestrial presence. And the only problem is the governments are just not ready to confirm it. And they've had 75 years. They've had a good run. This has to end. And I see excellent signs it could end this spring. 
And right. that's, that's, that works for me. I'm going to ask you to pause right there. In a moment, I'm going to ask Stephen Bassett, why this spring? What's happening this spring? What's going to be so groundbreaking that we're all of a sudden going to end this truth embargo, which has gone on for uh, over seven decades? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Temptations. It's growing. Another Thurman Henry selection. By the way, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, just join the Facebook group. Just go on to Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Speaking of things that are growing, the number of people that uh, are not accepting the government's explanation over the three objects that were shot down Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that number is growing. The number of people that are asking questions about extraterrestrials, that number is growing. Uh, We're talking with Stephen Bassett, who's been all over this issue for years. He's with the Paradigm Research Group and a leading advocate for getting the truth out about this stuff. All right, Stephen, you've said a couple of times now that uh, this spring could be a watershed moment in the UAP disclosure movement. Why? What can we expect this spring? I used to run marathons. And it's not unusual. You get through 25 and a half miles at all, maybe even 20.8, and you, you, you're a couple hundred yards from the finish line. And you, you, you dig, reach down for as much energy as you get, and you pick up the speed, and you try to run across that finish line, you know, with some style, looking good. That's nice. That's what I do. On the other hand, some people are so exhausted by the time they get near the line that they literally can barely run. They fall down, and they literally crawl a lot. They crawl across the finish line. They still finished. But uh, it's not very graceful. Okay. This 75-year truth embargo has been a very long marathon. And so not surprisingly, we're approaching the finish line and everything is picking up speed because everybody wants to look good. And so you've got the Congress getting on board and moving fast. You've got the DOD slamming together a massive cross-agency committee across 13, 16, 18 entities, Air Forces, intelligence, DOD, civilian contractors. Thousands of people are going to be involved. Millions of dollars are being uh, uh budgeted. Uh, then you've got the press jamming on this thing. I've, I've logged in 5,000 articles in the last five years on this subject with the vast majority of them about the actions of the DOD and the Congress. The public is getting all excited. The Hollywood the film industry is getting really excited. And I happen to be right in the middle of that. And I have some announcement coming and not to just the future, but I can't say anything now. I'm so sorry, Frank, but I'll come back. So it's like, wow. It's just picking up speed. It's got momentum. It's got action. All right. And the most, dr- most important thing was the two legislations passed in 2022-2023. The last bill, which was the FY23 National Defense Authorization Act, Appropriations Act, rather, 
uh, Bill 7776, as signed by President Biden on December 23. If you can get, you can find Google Bill 7776, National Appropriation Authorization Bill uh, 20, find it. Find the one that has got the option to click on text. It brings up the entire text of the bill. This is not the Senate or the House bill. This is a reconciled bill signed by the president. I think the unidentified is in there 31 times. There's two huge sections, 802 I think 43, whatever. Find those sections, read them all. Very hard because they're legislative language, which is a whole other kind of language. But if you take your time, you get it. Unprecedented legislation. I mean, nothing in the past even is in the ballpark of this. Plus, I have plenty of evidence, and others do, that the, the DOD is doing exactly what they're being asked to do. It takes a little while, but, you know, we're talking about the Department of Defense here. And so the Department of Defense is doing its job to set up the, the what is now called Arrow, the All-Domain Anomaly uh, uh, Response uh, Office, which is an excellent name because of the acronym Arrow. I like that, Arrow, Arrow. Uh, the Congress has is, is done the legislative. There's more work coming. And so all of that is coming together for what? Hearings, congressional hearings, the one they've been trying to get since 1968, only not the one day thing they did then, but weeks and weeks and not in front of some eh, semi-important committee. We're talking Senate Intel, House Intel, Senate Armed Services. There are scores and scores of military witnesses ready to go up on the Hill tomorrow and testify. But first, you have to interview them. This is the way it works. The DOD, an appropriate entity, which would be Arrow, would interview any military witnesses to get their testimonies to find out what they're going to present. And then they would go interview with staff committees, of the, uh, staffers of the committee uh, in Congress to get an idea, not to censor them, not to in- intimidate them, but they need to know what their testimony is. So they know what questions to ask. All right. They know what to expect. So they don't want to be overly surprised. They want to be able to be professional. And they will be professional because this is a nonpartisan issue, par excellence. And so the interviewing of military witnesses with important testimony is the key indicator that these hearings are coming. Because once they have a number of interviews done, they can call a hearing together in three days. All right. Well, guess what? Just about 10 days ago, I got word that a number of the witnesses to the turning off of nuclear weapons at our SAC base sites, which is a rather pretty uh, awesome uh, thing that the ETs did frequently, both here and in, and in the Soviet Union, have been called up to Arrow to be interviewed. Another witness, one of the pilots, said he had been called up or was being asked to come up to interview. I mean, they're not, they're not arresting or anything. They're saying, we'd like to interview you. Uh, uh, I mean, we're on the way. I mean, literally, as those interviews can easily be done. Now, in addition to that, you have to understand that the Congress has been getting briefings for three solid years. Initially, it was private briefings off 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 record in a sense. Um, witnesses being brought up there. Christopher Mellon organized most of that. Briefing entire committees, I think, in some cases, just certain committees, not everybody in Congress. And so they've gotten a whole lot of information from witnesses. And then they've had three classified reports from the DOD itself. They're crawling with classified and, and, and uh, not, not yet public information. And this is starting to spread through the Congress. We get, you got a hundred or so witnesses that are getting the good stuff and the other members can't get it because they're not on the right committee, but they don't like that. And so they're, you know, you know, asking at lunch, hey, how's it going, John? How's it going over there at Intel? Anything interesting happening? Did you get a briefing or something? 
And then at some party or something, five cocktails in, the next thing you know, they're spilling some beans. And so these other members of Congress are hearing and getting a sense of it, and they are acting independently. And the leading is good old Tim Burchett, Republican, Tennessee, conservative. Can't go on a show. Tucker, One Nation, you pick it. And not say there's sexual here. Repeat that. You broke, advanced you, technology. You broke up a second there. He can't go on a show and say. He can't go on a show anywhere and not say there's extraterrestrials here. Even though he's not been briefed, he, he's pretty sure that's the case. And so Tim is basically a audit plant. I may not have been briefed by the Congress or, or, or some of the pretty much figured out what's going on. And I'm telling you guys, there's extraterrestrials here. Mark Ga- Mike Gallagher has practically gone there. And then you've got people like scientists, like uh, esteemed scientists, like Gary Nolan, going on, on uh, Tucker Carlson and flat out saying there's extraterrestrials there. So you see, I'm not kidding, Frank, but being near the finish line is not the same thing as crossing it. In order to cross over, we must put these critically important military witnesses under oath with tens of millions of people watching in front of very important committees, receiving nonpartisan questions from very serious Congress people and giving testimony that will blow your mind. And it's going to blow it, not because you haven't heard some of it before, but when you see it under oath with the cameras on and the public watching by the millions, let me tell you, that's powerful stuff. And that is necessary to set the stage for the president, whoever the president happens to be, to be able to politically and safely and, and, and transparently with minimum disruption, go to the American people in the East Room, brief comp- press conference, there'll be dozens more, and say, my fellow Americans, I've, I've listened to this testimony for weeks. So have my staff. So have my, so obviously the, uh, the appointees of the DOD, I've talked with all of them. We are convinced this testimony is conclusive. This phenomenon, which has been around for a long time, we think it's, we, we don't, we know it's extraterrestrial. And that instantly triggers the post-disclosure world. Ex- disclosure is the term I, I coined, not the basic term, but the noun, the proper noun, capital D disclosure back in the early aughts to mean the moment of confirmation. Now, what is the moment of confirmation? There's only one that, that works. It's not a colonel coming out in the parking lot and giving a freelance press conference. It is the president of the United States going before the American people, either in cross at Cross Hall or in the, in the Oval Office and saying there is an extraterrestrial presence. The moment those words come out of his mouth, that is disclosure, capital yeah. D, bingo. And we enter the post-disclosure world. And that's, Frank, when things get really interesting. On that note, Stephen, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate you being so generous with your time uh, this past hour. If people tuned in late... They should absolutely go back and listen to the entire podcast of our conversation. They can uh, get it at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search uh, Frank Morano interviews and more. Stephen, we'll talk again soon. Certainly. Thanks. Uh, you can check out his work at uh, paradigmresearchgroup.org. You want to comment on any of it, you're welcome to. Uh, we have five open lines, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, we're going to talk with Walter Sterling in about 24 minutes. He is a guy that is uh, not only a very talented talk show host in his own right, but he's someone that is has an encyclopedic knowledge of the radio business from his years working as a radio consultant. And we're going to get into the difference these days between a podcast and a radio show. Because one of the things that I think is, quite frankly, ruining radio is that you have all these these people that are on the radio who are actually doing podcasts. We'll get into what we mean a little bit, and I'll pick his brain on uh, the, the state of radio in general. But I'm sure you have noticed there has been a big uptick in the number of couples that are having babies due to, to, as a result of in vitro fertilization, IVF. By the way, those of you that are on hold to discuss the the mystery objects or my interview with Stephen Bassett, please continue to hold. I'll get to you in a minute. But I I want to mention this and give you an opportunity to weigh in on this. The way IVF works, as I understand it, and I, uh, you know, my wife and I didn't go through this, so I don't know about it, but I know a lot of other couples that have gone through this. The way it works is there are certain embryos that you can implant into a woman, and usually what I think most couples do is they take the embryos that have the best chance of surviving. Well, imagine that you were provided no-cost fertility treatment and also offered a free DNA test to gauge which of those little IVF embryos floating in a dish stood the best chance of getting into a a top college someday. Would you have the test performed? Understand the question. The question I'm asking is, if you could test your embryos for intellectual aptitude, would you? And then pick out, when you're choosing which embryos to implant for fertilization, then pick out those embryos for fertilization. Well, if you answered yes, you are among... About 40% of Americans who told pollsters they'd be more likely than not to test and pick IVF embryos for intellectual aptitude. This is very concerning to a lot of bioethicists and gene scientists who think this is a bad idea. This opinion survey was published in a very reputable journal. It's not like a... I don't know, like a a self-reporting website or something. This is published in the journal Science, and it was carried out by economists and other researchers who say surprisingly strong support for the embryo tests means the U.S. might need to hurry up and set policies for the technology. So to put the results in context, the percentage of people who would test embryos for potential smarts is similar to the proportion of Americans who say they would consider an electric vehicle as their next car purchase. Michelle N. Meyer, a professor of bioethics with the Geisinger Health System, who co-authored the report, said, 
I certainly don't think this is something good. I am concerned about it. The bigger risk is saying nothing and letting this unfold against a laissez-faire regulatory and market system. I share her concern. And this was a real eye-opener to me. You know, I just finished watching Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan twice. And I just finished watching the Star Trek episode Space Seed. What do those episodes deal with? Those episodes deal with, I mean, they deal with a lot of things, but they deal with, in part, genetic engineering. Uh, And this is really concerning. If we're going to get to a point where parents can pick out their own embryos and have them tested for intelligence before they're even born and choose those embryos as the one to be fertilized, I don't think this is the next step in evolution at all. I think this is the next step in flirting with being a mad scientist. There's one company in the U.S., Genomic Prediction. They are already marketing embryo prediction tests. But so far, it only offers scores related to the chance a child will develop common diseases like schizophrenia or diabetes later in life. It's, it says it's not offering educational aptitude scores and has no plans to. Specialists have been raising concerns about predictive embryo tests in general. Last year, the European Society for Human Genetics called them an unproven, unethical practice and suggested they be forbidden until policies governing the use of technologies can be developed. I will tell you, I agree with the European Society for Human Genetics. One problem with the test is that it will be challenging to prove they really work, right? Because let's say, uh, you know, it's almost like when you buy carbon credits, right? Let's say you're, you're, you're buying some money, you're buying, you spend some money so that you can pollute. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll sell you some carbon credits. Well, what am I doing? So uh, I can tell you that uh, I'm doing a genetic test on your embryos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only going to impart the, implant the smart ones. Well, how are you going to know that I lied? Would you going to come back to me when the kid is 13 and uh, getting straight C's and say, wait a minute, we want our money back? You're not going to know. And if the tests do work, that's also a problem. The They include, uh, by the way, the geneticists involved here, very respected people, uh, Patrick Turley, for instance. And what Patrick Turley and the woman, Ms. Meyer, that I just quoted – What they say is that embryo tests could exacerbate existing inequalities in society. For example, if only people in certain socioeconomic groups use them to have healthier, taller, or smarter offspring, then that is going to continue. For instance, if you're lower middle class or poor and you're forced to have children the old-fashioned way, like my, my wife and I did, then you really don't have any control over the you, the intelligence of your child or the physical attributes of your child. But if you're wealthy enough to afford, A, IVF treatment, and B, the kind of uh, genetic testing that they're talking about here, chances are you're going to have a pretty smart baby and then a smart adult. And then the gulf between the haves and have-nots you know, could grow. So what Ms. Meyer says, for the foreseeable future and maybe forever, this technology is going to be available 
only to people who are already wealthy or privileged in other ways. To the extent that this does have an impact and gives any offspring a boost, this is not something that's going to be equally accessible to everybody. Just as wealth is inherited, this is literally things that are inherited. You could imagine a world in which this spins out over generations, and this is her words, helps exacerbate socioeconomic gaps. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This new poll compared people's willingness to advance their children's prospects in three ways, using SAT prep courses, embryo tests, and gene editing on embryos. And it found some support even for the most radical option, genetic modification of children. Listen to this. By the way, that's prohibited in the United States. Now we're really in Kanunian Singh or Martin Bashir, not Martin Bashir, Julian Bashir territory. Uh, it's prohibited in many other countries as well. About 28% of those polled say they would probably do that if it was safe. Can you imagine? They would have gene editing done on their embryos. I would never do that. If my child turns out to be smarter than the average bear, great. If he turns out to be a little duller than the average bear, fine. Uh, I'm not going to edit his genes to create a designer baby. And yet 28% of the public wants to. Well, what would you do? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. All right. A lot of people eager to uh, comment on a, a variety of issues. Let me begin with um, John and Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Um, hey. So uh, two things. One, um, I really uh, I don't think the balloons are <laughs> aliens. I think what's going on is they're just trying to build up a uh, a fear that we need to get more um, money to the Space Force and patrol the skies. It's just going to feed into the military-industrial complex. Interesting. Because we've already, we've already taken over, you know, the Arab countries for oil, and we've been everywhere else. Next place is the sky. And um, then as far as the embryos go, it reminds me of that movie Gattaca. I don't know if you've ever saw it. I, I have not seen it, but I'm familiar with the with the plot. Yeah, it, it, sum that up for people. Um, this uh, this guy is born in this world where um everybody's genes are edited, and he his genes are imperfect, and uh, his brother dies, and he tries to assume his brother's identity, but um, they catch him in the end because he's just physically unfit. But uh, it's a I honestly, I would, I would edit my embryos. I would rather be able to choose, you know, make sure my kid doesn't get any diseases or deformities. Well, look, d- diseases and uh, deformities are, are one thing. I think educational aptitude or intelligence is is quite another. Uh, thank you for the call, John. Would you have your embryos tested for intellectual aptitude? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Would you actually go so far if it was legal? Or maybe let's say it's not. Let's say you could get it done even if it's not legal. Would you have the embryo's genes actually edited to improve their physical or intellectual prowess? 
To me, I mean, look, there are all sorts of different, he mentioned Gattaca, which I haven't seen, but there are all sorts of aspects of science fiction to this. The, uh, the, the book Brave New World, right? You could see, you could see that being at play here. I, I think this is really dangerous for a whole host of reasons. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Kenny uh, is in Brooklyn. He's been holding. Hello, Kenny. Hey, Frank. How are you doing? Good. Hey, Frank, let me first tell you before I get to my comments, um, the music has got me dancing over here. Well, you got like the 70s disco thing going excellent, on. Excellent. Like, excellent. I love this song and the other one, too. Um, so, well, let me answer you a quick question about the, I call it talk about the UFOs, but I'll talk about the embryos. No, I would not do that. You're going to end up, so, anything even new but old eventually is going to screw up. You're going to end up with a kid with 10 heads, okay, with six heads or something looking like Frankenstein. You really want to take the chance on, on messing with your DNA? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you know I, I, agree, I yeah, I agree. But even let's say it works, I don't think people should be doing it even if it works, even yeah, if there's no, a guarantee that the child won't have 10 heads. I agree. I agree. But, I mean, because it will cause a, a displacement in society. People who are rich, everyone who's rich can do it, and they're going to make super babies, superhumans, while everybody else is just normal right. or whatever. Right. And that's not, not right. But I wouldn't take a chance because you're just messing with people's DNA and something's going to screw up. Um, but, okay, so now to my point about these UFOs. You know I call in about this all the time. Sure. Scientists make people understand that, we're not crazy. There's a logic to this. So if you'll allow me, I have a checklist here of things that are being said that make no sense, that they're getting caught up with, just like Stephen Bassett said, okay? So here my, my checklist starts with, like you said, they're telling us they don't know what this is, but yet they're telling us it's alien. And nobody in the media is checking them on this. So how can you tell us we don't know what it is, but you know it's not alien? It makes no sense, okay? That's number one. Then we have now, they already admitted publicly that it's not from China and it's not from the U.S., right? Right. They publicly admit they can't take that back. They've also publicly not said that it's from Russia or Japan or France or from any other country on this planet. Because wouldn't you say that, just like you're saying it's from China, if it was from some, like right. Russia or some other they're not saying that, right? Well, I think it's even if it were Russian, it's even more likely that they would say it because of the that's acrimony that's, that's, that's going on here. That's my point, Frank. That's what I'm saying. They haven't said any of these other countries. So we can eliminate all these other countries because they would say that as an excuse, right? Right. This right. is my checklist. I'm building my checklist here. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing, no, no, nobody from this planet already, because they're really living in the U.S. They said it's not the U.S., it's not China. They said, they haven't said it's Russia or anybody else. So now the last thing they're saying, as of yesterday, they said it could potentially, they said could, they used the word could, this is the last, potentially be from a private or commercial company. You heard them say that, right? Right. So now the logic is, we already eliminated all, anybody from this planet. They haven't mentioned Russia China, it's not us, it's not the U.S., it's no, not France. Now the last theory that they've come out with, Kirby said this, or the lady on the spokesman said, it could potentially be a private company. Okay, now, let's hear me out, Frank. Logic, answer this question. There's no way that somebody who has a private balloon, a private company, would not have heard about this event happening, right? Can we agree on this, yes or no? I would think so, yeah, of course. There's no way possibly that you can say... 
we're a private company. We put these balloons out. We're private, but we don't know that this is happening. That the whole world's going crazy because of our balloons, right? Right. So you know where I'm going already, right? Well, There's no way that you're telling me whether this is private or commercial that they don't know that their balloons have been shot out of the sky. Yeah, of course, Kenny. Of course, uh, Kenny. You can talk to the Pentagon or the president and go, "Hey, oh, sorry about that. Sorry for causing this world commotion." <laughs> That was our balloon. Yeah. And you don't think they would have run? I, I do. Kenny, yeah. I, I got to run because I want to get to some other people for, before we talk to Walter Sterling. I, I appreciate the uh, the observation, though, and the and the call. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. How are you, as always? I love your show. Thank and you. I thought Kenny was brilliant, what he just said. But anyway, um, uh, of course I would do that, the embryo thing. One of those embryos might grow up to cure cancer. The smarter people are, the better the world is going to be. Of course I would do that. Well, that, so that you're basically in favor of, of utilizing genetic engineering on a regular basis. Yes. I mean, I, I think then you're getting into eugenics. I, I think that's such a dangerous place. You're applying old-time old morality to the postmodern world. People have always done that. Years ago, the Catholic Church forbade cosmetics on the theory that people should look the way God made them. Well, I, I, mean, I, cannot... I, don't, I don't buy that. But I, I think then uh, once you get into uh, these are preferred people or potential people, then it's a stone's throw away from saying that, uh, you know, that people who are likely to have a, a double digit IQ instead of a triple digit IQ should be uh, aborted. And I think that's would that a... be so bad. Yes. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Why? B- because. There's a value to human life. And just because someone, uh, because they may not have a triple-digit IQ, uh, that doesn't mean that they can't offer a whole bunch of their own unique gifts to the world. I mean, th- this is uh, this is a lot like, and I, I hate to ever invoke Hitler or the Nazis, but this is a lot like not the uh, ethnic aspect of it or the anti-Semitic aspect of it. This is precisely what Hitler was trying to do in creating a master race. I had thought that the debate over over eugenics was settled 80 years ago, but clearly it wasn't. Because 40% of the country wants to uh, test their embryos for intellectual aptitude. 28% of the country says, we don't just want to stop there. We want to edit the genes of our unborn baby to make them these genetically engineered supermen and women. No, no, this is very dangerous. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Rick is in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick. Hey, Frank, if I was going to do any genetic engineering, first I would want to make the child altruistic and loving before I make them really intelligent because you don't want a really smart, evil person. Well, I I think altruism and um, a loving nature is something that is much more likely to be passed on through nurture rather than nature. I, I don't think that that's a genetic predisposition. I think it's something you learn with loving parents. Yeah, but I was just saying, if you could have choices, that would be more important than the intelligence. Because, like I said, you wouldn't want a really, really smart, evil person. <laughs> okay, all right, that's fair. What else did you want to add? Well, my original comment was, um, years ago, I started studying the global warming climate change issue. And I found a bunch of people who were very wise on the subject and very knowledgeable. And at this time, about 
maybe 15 years ago, they were talking about the next big scare was going to be that the government was going to say that UFOs were real. Now, they weren't saying that aliens are real and they're going to tell us it's the truth or aliens are fake and they're going to tell us that they're real. They were just saying that that was going to be the next big scare because they constantly want to control us with fear. You know, it's funny. Um, I've heard that theory elsewhere. So you think they could use this UFO, UAP issue to uh, kind of uh, do the same thing as, say, the COVID pandemic? Exactly. Interesting. More control, more control. And it's another excuse for a one world order. Well, well, I guess time will tell, uh, Rick. I'm not sure I share your pessimism on that one. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to I'm not going to go that far. 800-848-9222. That's a 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello Joe. Hey Frank, uh another great show like usual. Uh I agree 100% with you on this. That woman that called before, and my dad used to say something that he would uh talk to somebody with a PhD and then talk to a plumber and he would get a better conversation from a plumber. And I can't believe somebody would say that somebody with a low IQ shouldn't be able to be on this earth and you would want more people with triple digit. Uh, and playing around with people's babies and bodies, and uh, I agree with you 100%, Frank. I, I, I just think it's wrong. It's wrong. You're playing God, and it's just going gonna, gonna to gonna destroy the world. I, I Look, uh, maybe it won't destroy the world, but it is certainly – an issue of uh, of playing God. I'm with you 100% there, uh, Joe. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Walter Sterling in just a couple of minutes. But first, let me say hello to Mark in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Oh, thank you very much. A great, great show tonight. Thank you. Listen, this, this reason, I have experience in this, okay? And I, I'm credentialed, and I could talk about this any other time, too. I know time is short. This recent, recent spat of sightings, this is a classic UFO flap. All right, the government is tongue-tied on this thing. We've already had a Pentagon disclosure back in December 2020. Here's what's going to happen, because it's already happened, all right? The the government is going to say what they've always said in order to avoid worldwide panic. Yeah, there's something up there, but we don't know what it is. We're still clueless. That That's their, their escape mechanism. They're just going to admit, as they always have, there's something flying up in the skies, but up until now, we still have no clue. It's the clean answer, and it's the politically correct answer. That's what they're going to continue to say. By the way, Mr. Bassett, he forgot to mention Kevin Randall, too. Kevin Randall wrote those books with Don Schmidt also. Yeah, uh, Kevin Randall's been on this show, uh, a very very bright guy, a brilliant guy. Absolutely. Thank you. And finally, uh, before we get to Walter Sterling, let me say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. I have a friend. I have a friend who's an Air Force captain, former Air Force, and he knows about these things. And the truth is, the policy is not to shoot down UFOs unless the aircraft is threatened. These balloons, and now we're having drones, are from the Chinese. First, there was intelligence with the balloon, finding out what our sites are, the radar frequencies we operate at, the techniques that are being used. Now they're doing penetration testing with drones to find out what we will find 
and be able to shoot down prior to maybe launching an attack on us. Our radars are being adjusted as to the operating frequencies, the methods of transmission that they use, whether it's spread spectrum or something else. There's a whole catalog of IFF signatures, identify friend or foe, which are loaded onto naval ships, aircraft, ground stations, air force, planes of all types, and these are new. Uh, Robert, why... They are being cataloged right now so that they can be identified. I I have to run, but just answer this question. Why, if your theory is correct, that these other three objects are Chinese, why would the government have acknowledged that the spy balloon was Chinese but not the other three objects? They don't want the public to know that we are behind the Chinese mm-hmm. in this type of yeah. drone well, that's technology. Well, similar to what, that's similar to what Stephen Bassett said. Um, who knows? Maybe you're onto something. A guy that knows a thing or two about radio, I'm not sure what he knows about Chinese spy balloons, Walter Sterling joins me next. We'll talk about the state of radio. We'll talk about where it's going and uh, why so much of what you hear on the radio, not on these stations but elsewhere, is so oftentimes mediocre. We'll get into it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. of the talk radio community is a magazine called Talkers. Every day I get an email uh, from Talkers magazine with sort of a summary of what's happening in the radio industry. And every time there is a column from Walter Sterling, I immediately drop whatever I'm doing. I stop scrolling and I give that column my full attention because One, it's always well-written and interesting. But two, much more selfishly, I know there's going to be something in there about how radio itself and maybe even my program can improve. Uh, So I've read so many interesting columns from Walter Sterling of late, who I also uh, do enjoy listening to on the actual radio, that uh, I had to invite him to come on the program. He's even occasionally written uh, a nice column about, uh, about me from time to time. Let me welcome back Walter Sterling, who I first got to know as a radio consultant named Walter Sabo. Now he's a nationally syndicated radio talk show host in his own right. Walter, thanks for getting up early for us. Frank, I would do anything for you because you do an exemplary radio show. And you do the kind of radio show that New York City has needed for many, many years. There's been this big gap between the last live all-night radio shows and you. And the city has suffered and the medium has suffered, but there is nothing that radio does better than a live 
all-night radio show, and you're doing a great job. Well, I appreciate that, Walt. Now, uh, to give folks a little bit of your background, you were a master radio consultant. Uh, I worked for a couple of stations that you had consulted for. You were the your master radio programmer, one of the early architects and brains of uh, New Jersey 101.5, uh, one of the early architects of uh, WNBC back in its heyday, uh, one of the early architects of uh, Sirius XM radio, working with uh, people that some folks may have heard of, like Howard Stern and uh, a couple of other obscure individuals there. Why, uh, at a time when I'm sure radio consultants are very much in need, and I'm sure you were probably making a pretty good living, why would you make the transition to becoming a talk show host in your own right? Well, thank you, Frank, for that question. There are two answers to it. One is I was a consultant for over 20 years, and 20 years to do any given job is a long time. Hmm. That's the first part. I wanted to do something different. But the other part is that in the past 10 years or so, everything has changed. And the math works against consultants. The industry does not need consultants for the reasons that they used to. The reasons they used to was this. About 1995, in 1995 and before that, in New York City, there were 60 radio stations and there were 30 owners, 30 owners. And those owners needed every single weapon they could to compete with the other stations because on any given morning they could wake up and another station was, oh, my God, doing their format. Oh, my gosh, was an instant competitor. That's why they needed the extra RAM that a consultant provides. But now, due to industry consolidation, which is not just true in radio, it's true in rent cars, it's true in wine. Do you, you know in the state of Washington, every single vineyard, every single winery is owned by one company. No matter what the <laughs> label says, it's owned by one company. So there's been consolidation throughout America of different industries. In radio, what has happened is that now stations that you used to compete with are down the hall. Now radio stations that used to be viable competitors are owned by your company. In the city of New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, most stations are owned by four different companies, four. And as a result, they don't have the competitive spirit that they used to have, and they don't have the competitive paranoia that they used to have that consultants like me would calm. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if uh, if a company like uh, Premier, for instance, owns all the stations, they're not exactly worried about competing. If uh, if Wins and CBS, the two all news stations, are owned by the same company, one is not going to worry about the other doing some innovative promotion or changing formats. So I guess uh, it, maybe it's not such a golden age for uh, for consultants. The buzzword these days. At almost every radio station I go to, I visit, uh, the other hosts that I talk to around the country, quite frankly, is podcast, 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 podcast. In fact, when I returned uh, to WABC, there was a fella, he's not working here anymore, but there was a fella that uh, had been on the radio for a while, and he was trying to give me some friendly advice, genuinely. And he said to me, I don't do a radio show. He said, I do a podcast that happens to be on the radio. Radio 
is yesterday. Podcasting is tomorrow. You had a fascinating column comparing, uh, of all people, uh, Lucille Ball, the greatest TV star probably of all time, certainly comedic TV star, responsible for such iconic moments in television like... Body meet a Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. A uh, little bottle. <laughs> uh, Body meet a Benjamin. Body meet a Benjamin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Uh, Yes, with Vitamina Vegemin, you can spoon your way to hell. You were comparing Lucille Ball to what's happening today with the world of radio and podcasting. What in the world does Lucy have to do with people that are doing podcasts and radio shows today? A true axiom of show business is that every medium creates its own stars, and the stars are rarely transferable to another medium. Every single TV star of the 2000s and the 90s, the minute their show hit number one, they wanted to be movie stars. And uh, think of David Caruso. That, that didn't work out. He had to go back to Miami CSI. I can think of maybe three television stars that were able to transfer their stardom to movies such as Will Smith and Michael J. Fox, and I can't come up with a third one. Uh, the uh, it, And it's subtle. So, for example, many cable stars, many cable hosts would love to be on broadcast television, would love to be on broadcast networks, and, and they fail. They fail every time because the dynamics of the relationship between the audience and a particular medium are specific to that medium. Lucille Ball had 50 shares on television. She also owned a huge production company called Desilu. And at Desilu, she signed approval to start a show called Star Trek, and she signed the approval to start a show called Mission Impossible. She was a brilliant television executive and performer. And every summer when I Love Lucy was on the air, she, she wanted to make a movie, and she made a movie every summer. Name a Lucille Ball movie. <laughs> well, I, I happen to just interview the fellow uh, who is re- from uh, the, the Jamestown Museum where the Lucille Ball uh, exhibit is. So I, I did cheat a little bit because I asked him about some Lucille Ball films. But prior to that interview a week ago, I couldn't have uh, I, I, I knew she was in a Marx Brothers movie, but I couldn't have named you a specific title. And then uh, film executives are very specific about a star in a movie, they say, could she open a movie? Could he open a movie? Would people come just to see them? Almost no TV stars has that ever worked for. And at the same time, there have been huge movie stars who decided they wanted to be on TV. Disaster. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart did a TV show. He had a Sunday night drama show, family drama show. It lasted 13 episodes. Disaster. It's And where where is the nexus with respect to podcasting and radio? You would think they're both audio mediums. They both involve people talking. Oftentimes they both involve interviewing. Why is someone potentially a specialist in one and not able to transfer that uh, same specialization to the other medium? The production values of making a live radio show like you're doing right now and doing a podcast are completely different. 
when you prepare this show, your job is to get to the next thing. When you're thinking about your show, how do I get to the next mm. thing? How do I get to the next thing? In a podcast, it's all about on demand. And your audience can pause at any given time. And you're not sure when it should end. There are no rules about when it should end. Whereas in a, tele, a radio show, a live radio show, you know when it's supposed to end. Your relationship with the audience is entirely different because there's no pause button. There's nothing to check up on on the screen to see what's going on. There's no way to communicate with you other than to pick up the phone. Whereas on a podcast, they can listen to it whenever they want. They could listen to it now or 10 years from now right. or 10 years from now. How do you prep that show? Therefore, everything you do on a podcast has to be evergreen. Everything on a podcast has, has no date, cannot have any date. Well, that's entirely different than the type of show you do. You, you, you don't think that way. You go into a, a podcast room and immediately you're bored. <laughs> you have no idea how true that is. Well, you do, but I suspect uh, many don't. How do you explain then, Walt, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Walter Sterling. He's the host of uh, Sterling on Sunday, one of the most listened to uh, weekend nationally syndicated shows in the country. How do you explain the success of people that are able to do well in both media, people like uh, Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino? Doesn't that disprove your thesis? Well, not to be catty and horrible, I see no evidence of Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro being successful on live radio. Ben Shapiro's podcast is stunning and incredible, and he's gifted at it, and he's an amazing public speaker, but, oh, gee, he, it doesn't work on the radio. Not a big success. And Bongino, it's too soon to tell. Who was the other person you mentioned? Well, I, just those two. I mentioned okay. those two, but, you know, I, I think there are a couple others that uh, that probably fit that bill. You had another um, – uh, so why then do you think so many radio stations around the country are so eager to ha migrate to the podcast world? I'll tell you exactly why, and it's the same reason why there's so many radio stations in one building. It is because Wall Street, the venture capitalists, the people who fund these companies – will not fund a traditional radio station. They will not fund a traditional television station. They say that's, that's old tech, it's a dinosaur, there's no growth, there's no growth to, to be seen, and they think of it as, as an antique, whereas I think of radio as proven media. For 100 years, we have proven that audiences are attracted to what we say, and boy, do we move product. Oh, my gosh, do we move product. It's proven, whereas... What, what's a stream? What's a digital stream? You know what a digital stream is? It's buffering now. <laughs> buffering now. That's the name of most of those streams It's buffering now. Our distribution system is so elegant and so perfect and so cheap. Gee, how, how do you get the stream? Oh, you turn on the radio. You turn it on. Streaming to the car since 1938. Radio's been there. Now, as a result, Wall Street says, well, we're putting all our money into digital. We're putting our money into digital media, all kinds of digital media. Does it work? We don't know, but we're going to put the money there because they love to throw money into a bottomless pit. And the people who own and run these companies, these radio companies, are like, how do we get any of this digital money? What are we going to do? They're not putting money into old-fashioned analog tubes. They, they, they don't care about our towers. What are we going to do? And that's why. That is why, Frank, that every big company is pushing as hard as they can to take their talent and have them do podcasts. 
But the challenge for these companies, all the big companies, is they don't have a breakout star. They have not created one podcast that is a breakout star. So what do they do? They get every talent they have under edict to create podcasts, and then they give an aggregated number. They're able to show Wall Street an aggregated. We have 10 million downloads a week. Well, yeah, they they were doing it with 200 different hosts and uh, a thousand different podcasts. But that's why, and that is the only reason, Frank. That's well, it. One of the you know one of the things that I'm sure you've noticed is if you ask someone under the age of 30, for the most part, and I know there are exceptions to this, you ask someone under the age of 30, what kind of radio do you have? They stare at you almost like uh, you're an alien. The 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 people that listen to terrestrial radio, for the most part, are people that tend to skew older. Now, uh, I've always I'm very proud of the ratings we've been able to put up on this show, but you know how social media is. There are all these naysayers, and they always say, oh, well, that's because your audience is uh, 90 plus. That's not the kind of demographic that uh, advertisers want to reach. But podcasters, no. Podcasts, let's listen to by young people. That's a very coveted advertiser demographic. Why is that logic, the logic of the naysayers and the cynics, why is that flawed? Of the music streaming services, Pandora, Spotify, of the music streaming services, they have found an amazing thing, which is that 95% of the music that is sought by their subscribers and 95% of the people who go online to buy music are buying music from the last century. They're buying music by uh, Steely Dan and the Eagles. That's, that's where the money's going and that's where the ears are going to online streaming music. The fact is that if you were to ask uh, most 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds, what kind of radio do you have? They couldn't answer that question either. What kind of radio do you have? You have the one in the car. And the, uh, the, teenager, the teenager doesn't discover their music by streams or podcasts. They discover their music the way it has always been discovered, which is a friend says, have you heard this song? And they go to the radio. And the fact is, is that streaming, Pandora, Spotify, all of that nonsense represents what has always been true through the history of radio. There's a radio and a box of records next to the radio. The box of records has always been there. Now it's called Pandora and Spotify. Mm. Uh, talking with Walter Sterling, uh, you could check him out uh, on his show, Sterling, on Sunday. And you could also read his column in the pages of uh, Talkers magazine. Just go to talkers.com. Walter, if you were, um, you had a great column recently about the lost opportunity that so many radio stations have missed with respect to weekends. Now, two of the stations that we're on now, WABC in New York and WCBM in Baltimore, they're notable exceptions to that. They have great weekend programming. But if you go basically to any talk station in the country, it's it's a wasteland. Uh, Try and figure out what's going on. If there's a balloon being shot down, you won't know about it if you tune to any of these radio stations on the weekend. I can't imagine any radio executive in any era deciding, well, let's just make the weekends unlistenable. And yet that's precisely uh, what that what has occurred at 80 percent of the stations in our country. Why? It's not just true of talk stations. It's true of music stations. The fact is, is that program directors of most music stations, absolute fact, at five o'clock on Friday, they go home. 
and they don't listen again until they come in on Monday morning. They have not, It's not their station on the weekends. They have nothing to do with it. The fact is that after Morning Drive, the second most listened to day part in radio, the second most listened to time period in radio is Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And when a radio station, a radio company decides to not do anything there, uh, they have thrown away a significant potential for both audience and the ability to bring in audience to come back on Monday morning because on the weekends you have discretionary time. You're not stuck having to listen to the traffic report. You can dial around and find what you're interested in. The reason they have done this is because they have deluded themselves into thinking that it's not important. They, they re, there's no reason, there's no evidence for it. The fact is, is that when I started in radio, and I don't mean to sound like an old man, but as a disc jockey, one of the things we looked forward to was the weekends because there was always something special. There was an event, a concert, a ticket giveaway. There was something special on the weekends that was built up all during the week. And you hoped that you were one of the jocks on when that special event happened. Well, now, I swear, you listen to any music station in the country. There's nothing going on. And when my daughter was 12, knowing nothing about pre-recorded shows or voice tracking, we're in the car for a long time, and finally she says, you know, Dad, that station is, is pre-recorded. There's no one live there. I said, how do you know that? Because they never give the weather. Mm. They mm. never gave the weather. So she concluded as a 12-year-old that, that, that it's pre-recorded. And you're absolutely right about the news. When I, when I listen to a talk station, it's terrifying to me that on Sunday at 1, if anything happens, I will not know about it. Finally, Walt, and you got to come back. I, I have pages worth of uh, material that I would love to ask you about, but I'll end with this. There's a lot of pressure, particularly in the world of AM talk radio, to specialize and only focus on the world of politics. Meanwhile, you know, people are interested in a wide variety of things. If you go to talk about uh, if you go to talk to a bunch of friends at a bar, politics is maybe one of 10 subjects that may come up. Why do these radio stations get in the habit of specializing in politics? Is there something magic about that as a talk topic that merits an entire 24-hour format? No, and the great thing about your show is you don't commit that crime. The fact is that if my check engine light goes on today, if my kid gets an F, if I get a call from the school saying, we have to have a meeting with you right away about your, about your kid, Mr. Sterling, if my car won't start in the parking lot, all of those things are more important than anything that happened in Congress. And yet I never hear them discussed on the radio. If your mother gets sick, if your wife says she's going to leave you, that is far more important than, than the debt ceiling. Then the debt ceiling, which you don't understand, and we all have a debt ceiling. It's called MasterCard. And the fact is, is that um, the reason these stations do that is, first of all, I have to say it highlighted, underlined, they're dead wrong. Because that topic used to be in a very special group of shows called Public Affairs. And Public Affairs was on Sunday morning when no one listened because it was boring. It's still boring. And the fact is, is that that's where you get your ancient demographics. It's near, they're near death. That's that's who will you, who you're going to attract people who are near death. Nothing is resolved. 
You already know if you're a liberal or a Democrat. You already know if you're a Republican. No one's mind is going to be changed. It is a hopeless conversation. It's a crazy. Now, why did it happen? It happened because we're in an industry of copycats. And Mr. Limbaugh was very successful at what he did, but he wasn't successful because he talked about politics. He was successful because he was entertaining. Mm. And his facts were often very wrong, but he was very entertaining. My favorite Mr. Limbaugh statement ever was this. He was explaining why it didn't matter if there was an oil spill in the ocean because he never saw dolphins building superhighways at the bottom of the ocean. Who cares about them? Well, okay, that's pretty entertaining. Um, That's why. Well, I I have to run. I so appreciate the time, and uh, I hope we can make this a, uh, a regular conversation. Anything you want, Frank. You are a great broadcaster. I love your show. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Check out Walter Sterling at waltersterlingshow.com. Read him in the pages of talkers.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Questions, comments, thoughts, etc. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Ice Cube, another Thurman Henry suggestion. We may take us a few days, but eventually we honor everybody's birthday requests. If you want to know what kind of music we're playing, just join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, a lot of people celebrating birthdays today. I don't know that we're going to get to any of their musical selections. My step-cousin, Michael Filaramo, it's his birthday today. Um, Kristen Vigliotti, wonderful human being in her own right. It's her birthday. Linda Barron from the Staten Island Chamber of Commerce. It's her birthday. A lot of other interesting people as well. But um, if you want to know what kind of music we do play, join the Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. Uh, one quick thing, because the Facebook group has been getting a lot of um, – it's been getting quite heated. And I received an e- several emails actually yesterday from people that said they were leaving because of all the acrimony uh, caused by three or four members. I'm reluctant to even mention this because I think a lot of the people um, go go on to the Facebook group uh, and, uh, you know, kind of create uh, problems and stir up controversy because they may have nothing better to do or they don't have a lot going on and they're bored, basically. So I'm hesitant to reward that destructive behavior with attention on the radio. Uh, I would just ask, if you have a problem with someone in the Facebook group, other than me, I don't care what you say about me, say whatever you want, but if you have a problem with one of the other listeners, just block them. Just block them. There's no need to engage for hours and hours and hours and trade insults. No need for any of that. If you don't like someone in the Facebook group, just block them. Best scenario is try and get along with them. But if you can't do that, just block them. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Have you picked up the most recent edition of New York Magazine? Well, it's very interesting. The front page story and then the multi-page article behind the cover story has to do with etiquette. Etiquette. Specifically for Generation Zers. Now, when I heard this, when I saw this, when I was told about it, you, I was over the moon. Because there are all sorts of things that people are doing wrong, especially the Generation Zers. Recently, uh, for instance, we went to dinner, my wife, my, uh, you know, a couple of friends of mine, and the one young person who I think is a Generation Zer, and he was on his phone the entire dinner. And I bought his dinner. And he's on the phone the whole time. If I'm buying your dinner, you got to at least give me and everyone else at the table the courtesy of not being on your phone. So if there's anything that Generation Z could use, it's a etiquette guide that's geared for them. So I went over this entire list of 140 suggestions that New York Magazine published. The front page of New York Magazine says, is everybody tipping 25% on bottled water? And it's got a cool illustration. And um, what I'd like you to do, I never like to direct you away from the radio station, but as you're listening, I want you to go to my Facebook page and look through these. There's 140 suggestions. I'm not going to read you all 140, but I want you to look through these and tell me which of them you particularly agree with and which you particularly disagree with. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I come down. There's about half of these that I agree with, some strongly, some moderately. But I agree with about half. Uh, of the remaining half, I'd say about a, a half of them I vehemently disagree with. I think it's outrageous and stupid. And then I think the other half are just um, – they're not – anything that I ever thought about, and they're not things that I that I do. I don't necessarily vehemently disagree, but I just – I don't do them. And I'm going to read some of these to you. But I think a lot of these were put in here for exactly the purpose that it's achieved. Everybody is sharing this list on social media. Everyone's talking about it on radio. Everyone's talking about it on television. There's some shock value, right? For instance, if you, um, if you put out just a standard etiquette guide – that's been the same set of rules for polite society for the last hundred years. Who's going to buy that magazine? Who's going to talk about it on the radio? Nobody. So I think part of what New York Magazine did here is they uh, they tried to, I don't know, get a little shock value. Um, Quara Sika, I believe that's pr- proper pronunciation, was on WNYC talking about this article on etiquette. He is an editor at New York Magazine. You know, we just we just felt really rusty. We noticed, you know, and a lot of us have talked about how conflict is up in the subways. Um, a lot of us are engaged in sort of different relationships with our bosses and our workplaces. Like, there's a lot more conflict in our lives, and the terms are really different. Um, New York City's changed a lot, mm-hmm. so we we thought this was a great moment to sort of. Um, well, the great news is we have a nice, smart 
staff of people. So we locked all of them basically in a room one by one and grilled them about what was most stressful for them and then also what their best rules were for getting along with other people. So some of these I agree with strongly. My thing about the phones, that's on here. Don't go into a phone vortex at dinner. Others uh, are, are, I think, not only obvious to me, but obvious to everybody. Treat and tip waiters and bartenders well. And what should be very obvious to everybody, wear shoes in the office. But there's 140 etiquette lessons here. So many of them are stupid and treat you as if you're stupid. And they're very insulting and very infantilizing. And some are just, and you know what, some are so incredibly, I don't even like the term woke, it gets overused way too much, so incredibly politically correct that they're absurd. It's just ridiculous. Let me give you some of the more outrageous ones, okay? And then I want you to read the list and call me with your take on it, 800-848-9222. Don't address, this is actually in New York Magazine, don't address two or more women as ladies. What? They say, from men, it's oddly creepy. From women, it's an unnecessary attempt to feign some kind of unity. Absurd. Absurd. I... Call women ladies all the time when there's multiple ladies. Avoid vague and cliche euphemisms for your privilege. What? Accents aren't cute. It's condescending to describe them thusly. You can't say an accent is cute? I mean, you know how many times... Uh, I've heard people remark that a Southern accent or a a French accent or an English accent or an Australian accent or a New York accent, for that matter, is cute. Come on. Don't be. (laughs) And this, I feel like, was written for me with me in mind because I have no idea what's going on. Don't be loudly naive about dating apps if you're in a relationship. If you're in a relationship. So. What they're saying is if you're in a relationship, don't say, oh, I don't know what this Tinder is. I don't know what this grinder is. Meanwhile, I didn't know what they were when I was single. I certainly don't know what they are now. So now they're saying it's actually rude to be curious, which I think is bizarre. This I alluded to yesterday. White people should always clearly pronounce 50 cent. He's not 50 for you. Now, that is not true. The term 50 cent was coined by Sharon Osbourne, who happens to be white. This is just bizarre. And this is almost, I felt like, they're trying to fill uh, a certain number in each of these categories. And they threw this in here because I find this uh, just amazing. Don't tell people they look like other people because it is potentially insulting. Unless I am comparing you, I mean, come on. This is, I tell people this all the time. I don't find it insulting. At coffee shops, coffee carts, cafes, and bodegas, listen to this, tip at least 20%. Are you out of your mind? 
tip 20% at a bodega for what? Somebody handing me a bag of chips? 20%? Come on. Uh, that means you you spend $6 on a muffin and you're supposed to tip 20%? Come on. Um, th- this is just – so there's a whole bunch of others that I, I, I don't agree with. Some I do agree with, but I want you to read the whole list, 800-848-9222. There's a, so they're divided into several categories. In the category of um, – Friends and lovers. There's some good ones here. You may callously cancel almost any plans up until 2 p.m. At 2 p.m., there's still ample time for your friend, if they so choose, to text around and find another dinner companion. By 3, they almost certainly will be alone for the night. Uh, This doesn't apply if you want to cancel on someone who's cooking for you. In that situation, you have to tell them the night before. Okay. Um, when, uh, I'm not going to use all 140 of these, so uh, I'm not going to read all 140 of these. I'm just going to go a couple of, uh, highlights. Never wake up your significant other on purpose ever. I agree with that. You know, I mean, if the house is on fire, that's one thing, but I try never to wake up my, my wife at all. It's acceptable to tell any kind of a lie in order to leave a drinks date. It's not something I ever thought about, but okay, fine. I guess if you're meeting someone for drinks instead of dinner, then I guess that kind of makes sense, right? You're early in a relationship and you could say, you could make up a lie. Okay. Um, When another human is present, don't talk to your animal in the private voice you use when alone together. I don't really have strong feelings about that. And I'll be honest, I don't really alter my voice when speaking with an animal. On a date, all individuals present should gently and politely compete to pay the entire bill. (laughs) A lot of the dates that I've been with over the years have not read that one. Uh, My wife really liked this one. And I didn't uh, because I, I I do this once in a while. But she loved this. Never send an edible arrangement. I I think that's nice, send an edible arrangement. Things that are appropriate in any situation, babka, brodo, money if there are unexpected costs to deal with. A smoked turkey is especially nice for a grieving family. It can feed a lot of people. It's delicious, cold or warm, and can be eaten on its own in a sandwich or salad or hot open food. But edible arrangement, they say, is just filled with all these items that you never end up eating. And I have to tell you, when we do get edible arrangements, sometimes, you know, we do end up throwing away some of this chocolate-covered fruit. I don't agree with this one either. But again, I'm out of touch with where Generation Z is, and I'm out of touch with the dating world. It's okay to ghost after one date. You know what ghosting is? That's when you just kind of disappear, when you stop talking to people, uh, no explanation as to why you're not responding to their phone calls or texts. I think it's just rude in um, in general. Um, if you're – and there's some others that are a little adult that I, I won't go into. The, uh, if you're real friends, you accommodate the most COVID careful among you. I agree with that. I, I've gone through all these crazy COVID hoops um, before. 
It's okay to ask how to say someone's name. Just do it as early as possible and casually. That's good. Um, Don't ask people how they got COVID. Really? I feel like it's a pretty good conversation starter. Or why they're wearing a mask. See, there's there's a whole section on uh, COVID. Uh, Never ask someone about their nationality if you want to know their ethnicity. These are not the same. Try what's your ethnic heritage. Instead, it's not great, but at least it's honest. This I find so bizarre and so elitist. If you bring up astrology and it isn't met enthusiastically, change the topic. This, I I hope my brother-in-law, Josh, who's an astrologer, is not reading this because he will go crazy. Not everyone believes your made-up star BS. Couldn't you say that about anything, though? Right? Let's say you bring up religion, and it's not met enthusiastically. And you, you happen to be preaching a religious message that people don't adhere to. Couldn't you say that? Let's say you bring up um, pol- uh, uh, po- politics, and you're trying to evangelize about right-wing or left-wing politics, and people don't want to hear about that. Couldn't you say that? I, I found that... So un, uh, uh, such an unnecessary shot at people that are into astrology. Don't address. Oh, I, I did that one. Um, never at this. I found just crazy. Never ask anyone what their job is. It's classist and boring. Try three other topics first. What? What do you do? What kind of work do you do? I feel like that's right up there in the top two or three questions you ask when you meet someone. Uh, This one I like, but I always thought was uh, I was violating all the rules of etiquette because I I used to do this all the time. I do it less so now. But this is an interesting one. Always wink. Interesting. Um, Do not touch... The small, this is really elitist and just absurd. Do not touch the small of my back to move around me at the bar if you're ugly. Okay. One time, this is written by Turkor Zen. One time I was in a very spacious bar with at least a good two feet behind me. And then I felt it. A hand on my lower back like a piece of sandpaper. I turned around to find a man whose head was shaped like Kalu. I don't know who Kalu is. Kailu's staring back at me. It's awkward, uncomfortable, and unnecessary. A nice little excuse me would suffice. Is the music too loud? Give me a tap on the shoulder. Now, I have no problem if they want to make the etiquette rule, don't touch the small of my back to move. Okay. Violating people's personal space. You're touching them in an area where maybe they're not, it might be a little too intimate. But for them to specify, don't touch the small of my back to move if you're ugly, it's just so condescending and insulting. And this I find just bizarre. Maybe there's more than half that I disagree with. Never show that you're impressed by anyone. What? I do that constantly because I think people like to hear that they're accomplishments are impressive. There's something that they do that's impressive. So I I don't like that at all. Here's a good way to handle yourself when being introduced to a famous person. 
Your friend says, this is my boyfriend, Pete. And let's say it's Pete Davidson. You. Oh, of course. So nice to meet you. It's weird to pretend you don't know who they are. And unless you're a true fan, saying you love their work just feels disingenuous. That's not bad. I kind of agree with that, right? Uh, if you're, you're, you're introduced to a, a famous person that you're kind of a casual fan of, I think that is a good way to handle, uh, you know, handle that. Um, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on these, you can read the whole list on my uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. My wife loved this one. Now they have a whole section on going out and staying in. If your burger is becoming a salad, your restaurant order modifications have gone too far. You're allowed to ask for things based on allergies and preferences, but when your dish transforms into another dish, you're a problem. I agree with that. I agree with that. This was incredibly tone-deaf and rude, and for a list that's so PC, this one that I'm about to read you is completely un-PC. Don't foist your allergies onto a dinner party. What are people supposed to do? If they're allergic to, uh, if uh, Kenneth here is allergic to dairy, I- I'm going to invite him over and have him go into convulsions because I'm serving eggplant parmesan. That is the most bizarre thing on here. How about I, my rule of etiquette is if you have food allergies, tell people about them in advance. Don't show up and surprise everybody. Oh, by the way, I'm not able to eat wheat, chocolate, dairy, or citrus. Oh, okay, thanks. No, that should be the etiquette rule. Their rule, don't foist your allergies into a dinner party, is ridiculous. To gracefully exit a boring conversation, merge with another chatting duo, then sneak away unnoticed in the hubbub. You know, that is a good one, and I do that all the time, and that is a very, very good one. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you have uh, thoughts on these and uh, or, uh, you know, any of the other ones that I haven't mentioned. This is a good one. For group dinners with friends, always split the bill evenly. 100%. I have a, uh, a, a, a friend. He and, he and his wife, when they'll come out with a group, doesn't matter if it's four of us, five of us, six of us, four of us, not so much, but if it's five of us, six of us, they will always ask for a separate check. Now, I get it. They don't drink. Everybody else drinks. They want to have a separate check. I, you know, I never object. But there is not one time where they've done that, where someone else at that dinner has not spoken to me privately afterwards and say, can you believe they asked for a separate check? I mean, come on, you're among friends. But the corollary to that, and I agree with this as well, if you're drinking and I'm not, offer to pay the entire tip. I agree with that, right? I mean, if you're uh, out with uh, two pregnant women and they're not drinking and uh, you have two heavy drinking fellas, or not, not even fellas, doesn't matter the gender, you should offer to pay the tip. Uh, 800-848-9222. Tell me your thoughts on this etiquette list. They have a, and and my wife said this was written with me in mind because I always over-order pizza pies. The correct number of slices of pizza to order for a group of X people, 
is 2x plus x divided by 3. Meaning, if there's um, 10 people, it's 20 plus 10 divided by 3. So it's 23 slices. Any fewer is from, no, uh, that can't be right. Correct? Now, see, this is why I, I don't go to, with any of these math equations. So if it's 10 people, it's 20 plus, uh, let's let's see here. Let's see, the, the formula is X people, uh, it's 2X, so that's 20, plus 10 divided by 3. Yeah, 23 slices for 10 people. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, that seems a little low to me. Right? You've got to have at least 25 slices. Um, 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think of this list or any of your own etiquette uh, tips in any of the categories mentioned. Again, you can read the whole thing, facebook.com slash, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. James is in Pittsburgh. Hello, James. Good morning. I'm in Charleroi, Pennsylvania, right near Pittsburgh. You know what rubs me the wrong way, Frank, is when I sneeze and someone tells me, God bless you, I, I, that bothers me. And, you know, I was a waiter, waiter in a holiday in years ago, many moons ago, and I would tell them tipping is not a city in China. And then I was educated as a practical nurse, and I'll tell you the words I would, I could, and I should, that all lowers your self-esteem just by saying those three words. James, I don't understand. You, you say when you're bothered when you sneeze and someone says, God bless you? I, I don't believe in that. I, I don't think God, I think God blesses me 24 hours a day, not not just when I sneeze. That's, that's a nurse package from Charleroi, Pennsylvania, in the county of Washington. You have a good night, sir. Well, what what should they say, James? Um, Gesundheit. <laughs> but but isn't that just German for God bless you? I'm not sure. I mean, if someone's blessing me, I appreciate it, but I, they don't, that's old-fashioned. I don't think they do that anymore anyways. Kids kids don't even know what you're talking about when you say something like that. Wait, kids don't say God bless you? When you sneeze, I don't think that's a, a common practice no more. I uh, Thank you, James. I, I don't think that's accurate. I, I feel like I hear God bless you all the time. Sometimes they shorten it to bless you, but I, I feel like I hear that all the time. Um. You know, my grandfather, he was, you know, he was an Italian immigrant. He would say salute. So a lot of times in our family, even those of us that were born here, we would say salute. After uh, this is such a good one because I, I, I can't stand this. After high school, you're not allowed to be a birthday diva. Okay. This is so on the money. You can't use the day to make unreasonable demands on people. You're growing up, so grow up. So true. I have a friend. She's an adult. I didn't go to her birthday party last year. You know why? Because I didn't want to go. I'm busy. I have things to do. I didn't particularly want to go. And who cares? You're an adult. And wouldn't you know it, she was... Furious with me. Furious. Didn't talk for, I think, weeks. She was so upset about it, so hurt by it. Um, and so last year, the, then the, that was two years ago. Last year, I ended up going to her birthday party, even though I didn't want to be there. Because I didn't want to deal with one of these angry phone calls again. Who behaves that way as an adult? You know what my philosophy has been 
for every party that I've ever thrown, which is if you don't want to come, don't come. Don't come. Yeah, I want you to come. Sure, that's why I'm inviting you. But if you're if if you don't want to be there, then don't come. I don't care. You're not doing me a favor by coming. Um, even when Rachel and I got married, there were people that couldn't make the wedding. We didn't go crazy and cross them off our list. Now, if you say you're coming and then you don't come, that's a different situation. Um, so I agree with that one strongly. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Don't scan the room for someone cooler to talk to. At any party, offer to bring down a bag of trash on your way out. I like that one, too. Uh, This is a whole section, how not to be a problem when dining out. This is rules from an anonymous server at a Michelin star restaurant in New York. This is what it says. People don't know how to behave, but no one's ever known how to behave. Still, I've been working in restaurants for 13 years, and I feel like there's been a shift. Restaurant etiquette has lapsed. People at this point treat everything like their living room. Part of that has to do with the commodification of bourgeois luxury. Now everyone has a car service at their fingertips. Everyone has on-demand concierge delivery of literally anything they need. There's a complete lack of shame that's linked specifically to smartphones. Some people will come to a restaurant and just be like, um, you know, what the F do you want? So I um, I completely agree with all these phone issues. So 800-848-9222, Paulie is in Paramus. Hello. Frank, what do you think about tipping uh, gas station attendants? Well, I live in Jersey. I always give a guy a buck. A buck? Well, so I... I, you know, I don't usually fill up in New Jersey. I usually go to a self-serve in New York. But if I am ever in New Jersey, what I'll do usually is I will let him uh, keep the change. Assuming I'm paying with with cash, if it's... Um, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you say, uh, give me $20? <laughs> well, well, then I, uh, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, I end up, oftentimes, I'll be honest, I end up oftentimes not tipping the gas station attendants. Uh, now, if they end up doing the windows and really do put in the extra mile for full service, then you know, then I'll I'll definitely try and find a, a way dollar, to tip them. But a I dollar, Frank, I, a I, dollar to pump your gas. Yeah, I, you not get out of your car and get your car taken away from you. Is it worth the dollar? Yeah, well, I find that uh, a lot of the well, I actually really do prefer the self serve just because of the lower price for that, but. I find a lot of the gas station attendants, even at the full serves in New Jersey, they don't um, they don't really go the extra mile. They don't do, do your windows. They pump your gas and uh, and they send you on your way. You still give a dollar to, uh, let's say hello to Paul on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, good morning, Frank. I, I got a problem with this uh, splitting the bill evenly at dinner. So say, say everybody's having steak. I just want. I just. I'm just having a salad. Why should I have to pay the price of the steaks for a salad? Well, that's exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's exactly. Look, I've been in that position, right? You know, I'm not a so steak. I'm not a steak eater, and uh, I've gone to steakhouses with people. And you know what? That's kind of what you bargain for when you agree to go to a group outing, and because you have your time in the barrel, you have your time where sometimes you end up paying more than you should. You have your time where you sometimes you end up paying less than you should. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I see it different. I, I'll get a separate check too. If we're all eating the same thing, then I can see. Okay, let's split it all evenly. Because I've done. I've been on both sides of the spectrum. You know where I've had to, and and there were times where everybody's dish was like double the price of mine, and I'm like, I'm not gonna pay for, for what I'm not having. The you know, the other thing is tipping. People are going way out of control with tipping. Dunkin' Donuts, the bodegas. Well, that's what I'm saying. I would never. It's ridiculous. I would never. You know, you. I would never tip someone at a bodega twenty percent of anything. Right. You give them a couple of coins. You got to get at most a dollar if it's really a really nice person and really exceptional service. Thank you, Paulie. Go back to work. Um, here, these are the last two that I'll mention because um. My wife says that this one was written with me in mind, right? If you're hosting a gathering, you should explain the size of the invite list in real numbers. One person's small party is another person's quite large party. That's true. That's one that I am uh, very guilty of. I have oftentimes not specified the number of people who attend Uh, because, you know, a lot of times I'll just keep inviting people and I don't know what the aggregate number is. Uh, this is one – I have a, a couple that I'm friends with. This is written with them in mind because they are the couple that doesn't leave. If your host is doing the dishes, it means you're supposed to leave. Party's over. I am amazed that every party I have, there's always someone that does not get that message. Usually, I mean, it's the same group of people, but still. So those are the uh, etiquette rules in uh, New York Magazine. I put the whole list on my uh, Facebook page. You can have a look at it, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I only went through a handful of them, so you can read all of them and uh, make your voice heard on the Facebook page. Tommy is in Brooklyn. He's been holding a while. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Um, two, two, two points I'd like to make with regard to the embryos. I'm with you on the European idea. It seems practical to me. Uh, this science is verboten, man. We're not allowed to use it. Oh, by the way, gesundheit means good health. Oh, good um, health. Okay. Yeah, good health. Um, in in America, well, they, there are no there are studies going on all the time with these studies, and sometimes what happens is um, they fail, and you learn something from the failure as well. And a lot of times, the like, cures for diseases and stuff have come from failures. Yeah, that's a great and, point. Um, yeah, and uh, genetic superior humans uh, one day. Uh, sounds scary to me, you know. I don't like that idea. Uh, gene manipulation—that's scary stuff. Um, yeah, the other day I won—I won my first contest, uh, my first uh, radio contest uh, with you guys, and um, I won the, the, the tickets to the show with William Shatner. Oh, great! And, uh, promo- and promotions never got a hold of me, and I never got the tickets, so I didn't get a chance to go. Oh, uh, what do you mean you didn't go? Don't you just pick up the tickets at the venue? I don't know. Some promotions would call me. Oh, uh, Kenneth, what, what, what happened? What happened? How, how did Tommy not get his tickets? I've I forwarded it to promotions, so that's for them to handle. Well, I, I mean, well, I, that is an unacceptable response. I forwarded it to promotions. This poor it's guy out of my, got no it's tickets. It's out of my hands at that point. Oh, I did all my I could. goodness. Uh, Tommy, what day did you win the tickets? I think I won it Thursday, right? I think I can't remember. It was like Thursday or something like that. And, and then, I was supposed to go Saturday. Right, but then when Saturday came around and you didn't hear anything from the promotions folks, did you... I tried calling. You you tried calling, and, and who did you speak to? 
I, I just, it was somebody on the radio. I, I couldn't get a hold of anybody. It was busy the whole time. Oh, Tommy, you, time you, you gotta, you gotta email me directly when that happens, because that is unacceptable. Unacceptable. That is crazy. Yeah, hey, but at least I won. Yeah, but what good is winning a prize? You can't go. The fact that I won, you know, I'm a winner. Well, congratulations to you, Tommy. That's <laughs> uh, a great attitude. You're handling this a lot better than I would, but, um, uh, but, uh, that is just awful. I am sorry. I apologize on behalf of the radio station. Oh, thank you. So, you have a great night, guys. Thanks, Tommy. That is that kills me. That kills me. I well didn't I know our promotions person just left, Jake the Snake Roberts, but there's gotta be somebody. If we tell him that somebody's gonna get back to him, somebody's gotta get back to him. That's not right. Well, I wanna do something else nice for Tommy. We've gotta maybe we'll send him something. You know what? If I'm going to send Tommy something. If we have his address, then, um, you know, I, I, I'm i going to send him something. Jeez. <sighs> All right. You want to win something? How about $1,000? If you are the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, and uh, you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you uh, can participate in the $1,000 minute. If you get the... Ten questions right in a minute, then you will be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. Go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sign of Midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. We post it uh, in there each and every morning. Uh, yesterday it was a little late because uh, Matt Blaze was engaged with podcast production. Couldn't send us the music list. But hopefully we're back on the right foot uh, today. Uh, meantime, if you would like to win $1,000, you are in luck because it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say a little Greg on Long Island. Hello, Greg. Hey, Frank. Greg, uh, have you heard this contest before? Yes, I have. Okay, great. So you ready to go? You know what to do? Yep. Okay. What month is the holiday President's Day? February. Who appears on the $100 bill? Uh, 
Benjamin Franklin. Name a play written by William Shakespeare. Othello. What is frozen water called? Ice. Who was George H.W. Bush's vice president? Dick Cheney. George H.W. Bush. Ah, uh, any idea there? No, I'm sorry. All right, it was uh, Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle, uh, Greg. Uh, so I'm sorry, but um, much you did not win. Unlike um, unlike Tommy in Brooklyn, you did not win, but you got the same prize that Tommy did. So there you go. Um, that really irks me that uh, that Tommy won those tickets. Cause you know what? It irks me on two levels. One that he won a prize. He should get the prize. But also the fact that the tickets then went to waste. That means, you know, those are two other people that could have enjoyed the show. And um, I just, oh, that, that's going to, that really sticks in my craw. I, honestly, I, I don't uh, let a lot of stuff get to me. That really gets to me. You know, there's always something um, with tickets and this and that. I, I really don't envy performers because people that have to perform before a live stage show all the time because there's always drama with this kind of thing. You know, the the venue, the, the Shatner folks that organize the tour, and uh, if you're not up on what we're talking about, Saturday and Friday, I, I did the Q&A with William Shatner following two screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And they said, if you want anybody to come, just let me know. And um, I was getting deluged with ticket requests from friends of mine, uh, acquaintances. And, you know, I don't mind. I try to accommodate everybody. But uh, Saturday came around. Some friends bought tickets. My friend Frank Fontano, he bought tickets. My friend Tom Brodo, he bought tickets. And then I got a couple of comp tickets, right? I got my father and stepmother. I got my mother and her longtime companion. And um, there was someone else that was a friend of mine who had bought tickets, and she said, and she's a real big Star Trek fan. She's in all these Star Trek fan groups and clubs. She came dressed in uh, the original series outfit, you know, as like a a science officer or nurse chapel or something. So she said, you know, I bought tickets. I'm going, and I'm wondering, is there any way that I can take a picture with Shatner afterwards? And I said. You know, I'll um, I'll try, but I already submitted my request for the VIP experience. So my plan was to kind of see what I could do for her. You know, uh, if everything was going swimmingly, I could say to the people arranging the tour, um, hey, you know, do you mind just getting a couple of other people on the VIP? Even if it's just one. She said, I'll go by myself. The people in my group don't care. And I would have loved to have been able to do that for her because this is a nice lady. And uh, she would have really appreciated it. But then I am on my way to the venue on Saturday. And I get the call from my mom that they don't have tickets for her. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. This is all I need right now. So I then have to bother the Shatner people right before the show, even though they're busy preparing for the show and everything, and say, you know, I'm sorry, but the people that I left tickets for, they don't have them. It wasn't just my mom um, and my dad, but another my other friend, John. So six people affected by this. So ultimately they were able to straighten it out. But 
I, you know, it felt bad bothering anybody, but I guess that's what happens when the venue's not ready. So I was not going to say, hey, now that you, a half hour before the show starts, rectified this ticket issue, can I add another person to it? I was not going to do that. Um, so I kind of tried to make it up to this person by squeezing in their name in my uh, Q and A with uh, with Shatner towards the end, and they seemed uh, they seemed cool about it. But then my mom, you know, she was tired because it is a long night. And uh, my friend Frank, he mentioned that um, it, you, uh, the same amount. And I don't know that I agree with this. He said that the same amount of people would show up if it was just a Q and A with William Shatner. But he said to have people sit through a two-hour movie and then an hour and 40-minute Q&A, it does tend to be, it does get to be a long night. So my mom, she's a, she goes to bed usually pretty early. She's in bed 8.30, 9 o'clock most nights. And uh, this was a super late night for her because Shatner didn't rap until maybe 11.20 on Saturday night. So she was beat. So I called her to try and grab her so that she didn't have to wait in the 300-person VIP line. And she had already left. She said, oh, you know, I already left. But um, I had gotten her the VIP wristbands. So I wish that she would have told me that she was going to leave because I would have gotten her VIP wristbands and given them to these other folks that really wanted to go. So that was uh, that was inconvenient. And then, of course, um, because I'm in the crowd trying to find my mom, trying to find my dad – the people that I knew that uh, were in the crowd, uh, Keith Jensen, Tom Brodo, Frank Fontano, they're all giving me a hard time for not doing anything for them. Uh, not so much Keith Jensen. He gave me a bottle of port, which was very nice. But uh, my friend Frank shouts to me, what good is having you as a friend if all, I have to wait in line? So I waited in line with him, and uh, I then took he and, and his son out for a drink afterwards. And we go try to go to this place in Englewood, and they ask to. I'm carrying a like a briefcase. They ask, "Can I go through your briefcase?" Sure, fine. It's nothing in there. There's newspapers, a notebook, and a, a William Shatner record, and his most recent book. Fine. It says, uh, "I gotta pat you down. You gotta pat me down." You ever notice the places that ask to pat you down? The places that ask to pat you down are always the places where there's most likely to be weapons. There's no correlation. You'd think, oh, pat-downs, that means there's not going to be weapons here. No, no. Those are the places that there are weapons. Now, I I usually carry two knives on me. I carry a um, like a pocket knife in my pocket, you know, which can look a little intimidating. And I also carry a small little knife... It's a little bit bigger than a nail file on my keychain. So I had both my keys on me and, you know, this other knife that's kind of intimidating. So I said, well, you know, I do have a knife on me. I'm happy to let you hold it, happy to check it, but or I'm happy to put it in this bag. But, you know, I do have a knife. He says, no, if I you got to put it in the car, because if I take it from you, I'm not able to hold it for you. I have to confiscate it. I said, well, my car is I walked here. I walked here, my car is 10 to 12 minutes away. I don't really want to walk all the way there, put it away, and then walk back here. And he says, well, sorry, can't let you in. So I left that place with with my friend Frank and his son. And, of course, and then we make our way to this nicer place. It was, I think, a steakhouse called Sophia. Really nice, actually. 
And I didn't try the food, but the kind of the vibe was nice. And you know how you know it's a nice place? No one asks to pat you down when you're walking in. And I'm wearing a suit. I mean, not that people should be profiling based on wardrobe, but come on. Nice, well-dressed guy like me with a fresh new haircut. What do you need to be patting me down for? But as I was uh, looking around at, I guess it was midnight at this point, for places that are open near me in this community that I'm totally unfamiliar with, my phone battery dies. So my friend Tom Brodo met me, not me, but he thought he was meeting me, he met me at that other spot that threw me out. So he's there waiting with nobody showing up for 45 minutes. And I am having, you know, cocktails with uh, Frank Fontano and his son at this other joint. And uh, I did have my phone charger with me. They let me charge it at that other joint. And I texted Frank and he was able to meet us for last call at uh, at 2 a.m. So um, that's the that's the that was the adventure and behind the scenes situation. So that's what you missed, Tommy. I'll tell you, if I ever run into you in Brooklyn, um, maybe I'll, I'll buy you a drink out there to make up for for what occurred. And I am going to send you a pen because that's uh, that's not nice. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. But first, let me say hello to Marie on Long Island. Hello, Marie. Good good, good morning, Frank. Um, William Shatner, did I tell you that I watched that whole series of Unexplained? It's a great on series, Netflix. isn't it? I love it. I've stolen love, a lot of topic ideas from there. It's great. I love his voice. He's, he's, and then here, I don't know if I shared this with you real quick. When he went up in the in the atmosphere last year, whenever it was, you watched it, right? Of course. Absolutely. Did. I didn't like, I, my husband was like freaking out. When, he, when they were trying to interview him, there was a bunch of young, crazy, little, crazy, happy, excited people running around him. And here he is trying to tell his experience with seriousness, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, did you did you catch that though with that interview? A hundred percent. Yeah, well, we actually talked about it a bit at the at the show. Absolutely. I got you. Oh, you did. See, I didn't go to the show, but anyway, my husband and I always tip. I always tip the gas station if I get twenty dollars, like a full tank. I always give the guy at the gas station a dollar. We always tip very handsomely, but uh, I haven't been to a restaurant where they're going to pat me down yet. <laughs> I'll say, pat this. No, but anyway, <laughs> what time is your show on? Like twelve to five? Well, it's one to five Eastern, Marie. Four hours. Wow. Yeah, you're telling me, Marie. I oh, gotta Lord. run, but I appreciate. I, you... I pre- don't run. Take the car, love. That's very funny. Thank you. There you go. You fit right you in, know. Marie. Thank you. Um, appreciate that. 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. You want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Andy B. Uh, unfortunately, the late great Andy B. With our uh, theme song there. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. Still have three open lines, which is very rare this time of the morning. So if you want to be heard, now's your opportunity. Just make it pithy and uh, ideally pretty clever. 800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Russell! Hey, for Gary of Staten Island, Norman Mailer was not embarrassed by Jack Henry Abbott. I drove a limousine for the lawyer Ivan Fisher, who got Abbott off on a manslaughter conviction, and they had me eating dinner at the restaurant with him afterwards. Charlie! Hey, is your William Shatner interview going to be broadcast anywhere? And uh, did he let you shake his hand or hug him? Uh, no hug. We did shake hands. Ray in the Bronx. Kudos to Ken. I got my handsome mug in a New York minute. I got an idea for a new segment. Where in the world is Mike from Lake George? Go, Curtis, go. Mike in Montclair. Morning, Frank. Frank, 49 out of 50 radio experts agree. You know what you are doing. Keep on bringing us always great radio, mostly. Jeff. Troy. Get some antiques, talk where you can. Stock price is going down real far, about $5 a share. Going to go up to over $100 a share. Terry. Yeah, why do you always let him come on with uh, Sid and all that? I can't understand that. You can't stop that? No, he calls with a different name every day. Go ahead. Uh, Have you seen the semen? (laughs) Thank you, Terry. Very clever. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We will end with Mark. Hello. Mark. Oh, uh, thank you, Frank. It's been a, it, yes, sir, it's been a minute. It's my daughter Fallon's 21st birthday on Valentine's Day. We love listening to you, and thank you for always being smart and teaching my daughter new grammar words. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, happy birthday to her, but... Uh, you better be careful if you're taking grammar tips from me because I have a very creative use of the English language, right? So if she starts asking you to pass the maple syrup, it may be time for an intervention. Hey, by the way, I want to wish a uh, happy birthday last week to uh, a great listener of ours, Richard Ignizio. Uh, he's been a listener of ours from the beginning, a great guy, and he turned 70 last week. And I'm sorry I didn't mention it last week. I didn't know about it until a few days later. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.